Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary Temporary Experts. Experts. This week's topic is... Alternative Energies. Because it's it's in in the the news. news. But first, some updates from unanswered questions and podcasts of yesteryear. Mostly the last one. (laughs) Uh, So, Davis, uh, you spoke a lot about Osmosis Jones in Mm -hmm. our Time podcast, uh, and who the enemy was, but you couldn't remember his name. Did you look it up? I did look it up. I, I'm now remembering my desire to like rewatch that movie again as well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the villain's name is Thrax. So play on Anthrax, ah. which uh, I think makes sense. I don't really know what this, all the symptoms of Anthrax poisoning <laughs> are. But yeah, because he's like, a, um, like another organism and stuff like that. But yeah. yeah. Um, well, I was very disappointed when I went to find uh, like fun gifts to put on this uh all my advertising for last episode i could not find one on osmosis jones and i was very disappointed yeah we gotta internet we gotta bring it back into the the cultural zeitgeist yeah (laughs) (laughs) the resurgence of osmosis jones yeah um you were tasked with discovering the long lost system of measurement known as (laughs) stones yeah long lost everywhere except in the uk um so i believe i said something like it's 12 pounds but it's actually 14 pounds Okay. It's 6.35 kilograms. That's a very, that's an oddly specific measure. Maybe there were a lot of like 14 pound stones and they just, (laughs) (laughs) they just went with that. It's all I can think is where it came from. We still don't know any more about the origins or usage of, but we know what the equivalency in today's units is. This wasn't a weight one. (laughs) I'm sure it's something kind of like the way like quartz and pints and cups are all related and stuff like like that. Or yards and foot and all those, right? Yeah. All those good imperial measurements. A larger grouping for pounds, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then we also, uh, you mentioned the, there was a website that had a bunch of the old school educational games. Uh, Did you look that up? I I did. And I was sort of like, I was sort of like, why could I not remember this? (laughs) It's literally called archive.org and it's like the internet archive. So not only, it's basically anything that was like ever hosted online that was like captured in this way, like put onto the archives, so like every web page just like ever existed. Um, you can be found there. There's a few things that like don't exist on there anymore. But yeah, there's like all these old like games and stuff like that. Like all sorts of stuff. There's like the original like Harry Potter PC games oh. from like 20 years ago. Sweet. And Oregon Trail from like 20 years prior to that even. <laughs> so yeah, lots of interesting stuff. So Excellent. you could you could easily sink hours and hours. I'm sure a lot of those like math, you ever play those like math games? Oh yeah, I was just about to say, I'm going to go and look yeah. for Math Circus this weekend. There was one that I really <laughs> do want to try to find. I unfortunately can't quite remember the name of it. I think my parents probably still have the CD, but it's, uh, it's one where it's like a trivia game, but you're in space, but it's based off of all these like pieces of classic literature. Uh-huh. And like as a kid, I didn't know any of these pieces of <laughs> literature. It was like all stuff that I would have never read. And so used to like my mom would be the only one that could like help me play it because she was the only one that had read like a good <laughs> coverage of all these different like kind of classics and stuff. So I gotta try to find that one because I've I've always wondered. It, it pops in my head every so often. I think to myself, it's like, do I know, am I more am I better read now? <laughs> could I do? Would I be able to answer any of these? I think some of them are about like the Anne of Green, about like Anne of Green Gables and stuff though, which is not a book 
that I've ever read. So. Yeah, same. Yeah, well. But it'd be a good challenge. All right, so next week uh, or next time we'll let you know if I found Math Circus and if Davis found mm. this space mm. literature game. Yeah. I also might try to find, uh, what was it called? I Can Be an Animal Doctor, I think was like the name of the oh my goodness. game. And you were like, you were a vet and there was like an animal and then it, you have like three treat like three options treatment options you just like figure it out it was fun and it's why my mom thought i was gonna be a vet for a long time and i was like oh, i don't want to be a vet <laughs> i hope i hope that there's some of the like magic school bus ones on there Ooh. i will i will download them i'll cash them myself or the clue finders i don't really remember those ones they were just they're like the learning video games i like uh, learning video games yeah and there was one where like you went it's a grade six one you went like underground uh because there were these like sentient plant beings that were going to take over the world I never finished it, so I have no oh, idea wow. how it ends, but yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you can't play video games without electricity. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Davis. Oh, no. Oh. It was a good that segue. That was a good segue. It you was. Blow, you blow my spot up. <laughs> I, I told you I had another thing. Okay, right. Uh, <laughs> did you write a volcano song? Oh, no. Are you serious? <laughs> I told you. I was going to ask you not to ask you about this. <laughs> I, I, will, I will lie. Uh, and say that it is currently under development. It's in the uh, hands of producers. Okay. Um, you know, I my writing process is very intricate. And, I'll just keep asking every podcast. Yeah, exactly. And I'll keep deflecting with more outrageous lies. Perfect. Next week, it'll be my producer stole it. And oh. He's actually going to win a uh, Tony for it. Nice. In the a Tony. A Tony. That's Sweet. right. It's too easy to win a Grammy. Oh. That's the quality of song that I've written here. That you'll nice. that un, you know until these uh, various legal disputes are solved, you may never be able to. Well, that's my forward, uh that's my excuse for this week i look forward to hearing your various excuses yes uh, <laughs> and on that we'll go back to video games video games do need electricity davis mm -hmm. they do <laughs> but how do we get electricity sarah a whole bunch of ways <laughs> so <laughs> there's like yeah this segue's falling apart um yeah we're talking about uh energy today uh, specifically kind of alternative energies for green energy mm -hmm. uh, and sort of the green energy transition, which is like a phrase I think that I will use a fair amount throughout this episode. Uh, so if you're aware just this past Friday, well, that doesn't really help depending on when the podcast comes out. <laughs> um, so if you're aware, just recently the COP26 forum wrapped in Gla uh, Glasgow. So it's a meeting of all these different countries, uh, world leaders to attempt to grapple with the growing issue of climate change. Yeah, and COP stands for Conference of the Parties. Uh, the and parties being the countries. Yes. Uh, and yeah, this climate summit has met every year since founding in 1992, uh, except for last year because COVID, COVID mm -hmm. delayed it. So this was the 26th gathering for them. And this is like a UN initiative kind of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's the group of nations that forged the UN framework convention on climate change, which is UNFCCC. So oh. they needed a trendier acronym. Yeah. So they went with <laughs> COP. COP. Yeah. Uh, COP 26, baby. Yeah. And this, uh, this group commits them to act together to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic, which is human-induced, interference with the climate system. And the UN report this year said it's a make-or-break year. In terms of climate change action. Yes. And I mean, yeah, I think that's like, I think a lot of people have had that sense of things. Um, I, I had some hesitancy towards doing this topic because I was a little bit like, ah, oh, well, we, you know, we did talk about climate change a little bit yeah. during the heat wave. And it's just like every, you know, this year, especially it's like every couple of months, there's the big stuff about climate change. And I was yeah. like, people are going to be a little sick of it. But ultimately it was, it was big news for like two straight weeks. So. Yeah. 
at a certain point, you might as well talk about it. And we found an angle that we liked, so I caved as usual. <laughs> <laughs> we also couldn't find other stuff in the news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and so the uh, COP26 this year's came out with four goals. So the first one was agreeing, I think, to a steep change in commitments to emissions reduction, uh, strengthening adaptation to climate change impacts, getting finance flowing for climate action, and enhancing international collaboration on energy transition, clean road transport, and nature. And there was actually a, what was called a vote. It was like a survey that was, it was done by the UN Development Program, the UNDP. And it's been referenced a lot in articles that talked about uh, COP26. And so this was the People's Climate Vote. With 1.2 million respondents, the People's Climate Vote is the largest survey of public opinion on climate change ever conducted, which used a new and unconventional approach to polling. The results span 50 countries, and those 50 countries cover 56 percent of, wor- of the world's population. So a huge survey. And one of my favorite things about the survey is how that they got it out to people. They actually distributed distributed it via mobile game ads. Like Oregon Trail. You know, I was playing Oregon Trail and just lots of pop-ups about surveys. Sure. <laughs> I don't believe you. Yeah. That's <laughs> what is... that's what all the kids are playing these days, right? On yeah. their on their iPhone 46s. Yeah, not not a uh, Candy Crush. For sure. I don't think people still play Candy Crush <laughs> People either. do still play Candy Crush. I don't know if the youths are playing it, but yeah, people play. Yeah, I don't play. think the youths do. I don't know what they they're, do. They're, do, they're doing their TikToks. Oh, they're too, much, too busy <laughs> with the TikToks. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, so they distributed the survey uh, through mobile game ads uh, in 17 languages. So they really mm. got it out to a bunch of different countries worldwide. Um, and the respondents, with that 1.2 million respondents... Over half a million of them were people under 18. And people under 18 are often missed in votes because they're under 18. They're under legal voting age in most places. So this was, it's really good to see where, uh, like, younger mm-hmm. younger uh, interests are. People who are going to be most affected by climate change. Exactly. Before we continue, a word from our cross-promotion partner for this week's episode. If the endless stream of doomsday news about climate change has you feeling hopeless... Why not try a podcast featuring individuals who are making a difference? We recommend Season 2 of Heat of the Moment, a podcast from Foreign Policy and the Climate Investment Funds. Join host John D. Sutter as we hear stories of people around the world transforming the way we live, work, even eat, and learn what change is possible through the power of collective action. Find Heat of the Moment Season 2 on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. So yeah, so we thought uh, we would take this opportunity to talk a little bit about this green energy transition that you kind of hear talked about a lot and stuff like that. Because there were four climate policies that were emerged that emerged from the survey as the most popular globally. And the first one was conservation of forests and land. And we kind of touched on this in our natural disaster podcasts. We're talking about like natural, mm. natural systems are really good, like mangroves and swamps and wetlands to help like absorb those floodwaters and all those sorts of things and tree breaks that stop winds from blowing across and making tornadoes and all of that. Um, but And that had 54% public support. But the second climate policy with 53% public support was solar, wind, and renewable power. Um, and just one more f- stat uh, <laughs> from this <laughs> survey I wanted to get in here before we move on was that... Um, over all 50 countries, 64% of respondents said that climate change was an emergency, presenting a clear and convincing call for decision makers to step up on ambition. And of those people, 59% of them said that the world should do everything necessary and urgently in response. 
So that was actually really heartening to me because there's so much uh, like back and forth rhetoric on this. And there's it seems like people are so divided on it. But then to see this and there's obviously a bit of a bias of people who are actually answering the survey, but that there are this many people who are like, this is a big problem and we have to act now was heartening. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you have been sufficiently heartened yeah. by this uh, by this people's climate vote. I mean, it is quite interesting, right? You think about like, you kind of, sometimes you can look at like 64% you go like, oh, well, there's 36% of people that voted against it still or like don't think it's an emergency. But one, it's probably a question with like varying degrees. And then yeah. two as well, like- I think there were, there were three or four options. Mm -hmm. And you think about most like referendums uh, on a type on a question like this, especially where it's a binary, like a yes or a no, like you survey any population in certain types of referendums, you're going to get a lot of like really close 49, 51% splits. Like mm -hmm. even like Brexit was what, like 52, 48 or something, something like, like that. that. <laughs> like the margins were like less than 10 points between the two sides. So it's, uh, so yeah, it shows that um, this is why we keep hearing about all this stuff these days. And it's a big, it's a four, a uh, pressing matter on most people's minds. I know it's a pressing matter on like my mind, the yeah. uh, the climate crisis, as it were. But yeah, so obviously, um, one of the big things that comes out uh, that's coming out of COP twenty six and just the climate meetings in the last few years in general is this push to net zero. Mm -hmm. um, so this is carbon neutral economies. So this is like all human activity across the globe, not putting more CO two into the atmosphere than we are capturing or taking out. Uh, so and not just CO2, right? Like any of the greenhouse, greenhouse gases. gases, like methane mm -hmm. is one you hear a lot about and yeah. all those. Exactly. So basically in order to do this by 2050, it's this colossal undertaking. We need to have this massive shift away from our traditional fuels, which are mostly fossil fuels. So these are things like natural gas, coal, and petroleum. But oil. Good old oil. And where there has been a lot of growth in green technology over the last few years. It's still only something like 30% or so of all of the energy in 2021 that was produced globally is from renewables. So these are things like wind, water, solar, nuclear, uh, these low impact renewable energies. And it's estimated that by 2050, at least half of all the energy in, uh, in the globe will have to be produced this way in order to meet those targets. So we thought we'd go into those those topics today. So uh, just to reiterate, we're going to go through water, solar, wind, nuclear, and that's the order we'll go through them. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll cover a few other little things as well at the yeah. end. Uh, some other um, energies that don't typically get as much conversation just uh they're not they're never going to form as big a share and they don't have as wide application so we'll just touch on some of those natural sources as we call them yeah Absolutely. so why don't you kick us off with some conversation about water book one water <laughs> yeah we're gonna have to have a four book system but uh for those of you who uh haven't watched we are making an avatar the last airbender reference here mm -hmm. so just keep that in your mind through the whole episode and it'll probably <laughs> I mean, that always makes it better. Okay, so hydroelectric power or water is, this is stuff that's powered by the kinetic energy of flowing water. I have some definitions here, so you're going to get some mm. me reading definitions. So hydroelectric is a renewable source of energy that generates power by using a dam or diversion structure to alter the natural flow of a river or other body of water. Hydropower relies on the endless constantly recharging system of the water cycle to produce electricity using a fuel, water, 
that is not reduced or eliminated in the process. This makes sense. You like you can think of like putting a big water wheel in a stream, and the stream just comes by and pushes it because mm-hmm. that's what the stream is doing, and it'll move your wheels. So uh, as you have water pushing, it will be turning turbines or generators. Uh, and this turns the kinetic energy into electricity that is used to power homes, businesses, and industries. So a hydraulic turbine that we have in this sort of situation is a rotary engine that uses the flow of fluid, water, uh, in this case, to turn a shaft that drives machinery. So the flowing or falling water strikes a series of blades or buckets, so you think the water wheel again, that are attached around a shaft. And then the shaft then rotates and the motion drives the rotor of an electric generator. Pretty straightforward in terms of uh, the what is happening. Mm-hmm. You're taking kinetic energy from the flow of the water and you're changing it into electrical energy using an electric generator, which essentially, if you're not familiar with it, it's just a one type of metal coiled around and then passed through other plates of the metal to create an electric field. And then that moves electrons, which can be used to do work. Thanks. That was one part I did not look into. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it makes electricity. Yeah, and electric <laughs> motors are like, it'll be, it's sort of interesting, like, just as an aside, like, the electric motor, obviously, we think about, like, a car mm-hmm. often was, like, a big part of, like, the electric motor. Yeah. Um, or, like, why we, like, the transition to electric motors. Um, and the same way that, you know, a traditional gas vehicle will, you know, you're exploding the gasoline and that's pushing pistons, which drive the shaft, which drive the car, you're doing you're getting rid of all those explosions and you're just doing it with electricity um so one of the advantages being that you have like instant power output with an electrical engine but in this case it's sort of happening in reverse where you are driving a shaft using a physical force and generating electricity that can be stored or taken down the line for use exactly Mm -hmm. cool thanks davis yeah and it'll be kind of important (laughs) because as we'll see a lot of these technologies rely on some, some sort of generation of electricity through generally through turbines. Yeah. Yeah. It's a this similar physical process. Yeah. Which makes sense. We're using physical earth forces. Mm-hmm. So they're all kind of moving around and we're just harnessing them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So a, a couple of fun terms to make this more sciencey. So at a plant, water will throw through a flow through a pipe, which is called a penstock. And then that water spins turbine blades and then that spins a generator and that produces electricity as Davis explained. Um, And the energy available, this uh, is just kind of logical, the energy available from the moving water depends on both the volume of the water flow and the change in elevation. Uh, Change in elevation is known as the head, so from one point to another. So the greater the flow and the higher the head, so the more change in elevation and the higher volume of water, the more electricity that can be generated. Makes sense, right? Like, if you put a water wheel in a still lake, it's not going to do much. But if you put it on, like, a mountainside or, like, Niagara Falls, fast water that's mm-hmm. moving from a high place to a low place, you can generate a lot more energy. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been to the Hoover Dam? Nope. So the Hoover, well, it's pretty, it's a pretty cool piece of engineering. Okay. Um, but, yeah, like, if you stand at the top of Ho- the Hoover Dam, it's disorienting, like, looking down the side of it and just how far it is. But that's the kind of distance that we're talking. So it's, like, the you know, the depth of the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. that you were talking about in terms of elevation change to generate, like, electricity for, like, all of Las Vegas. Woo! The City of Lights. I think they say that. I think. The Jewel of the Desert. I can't remember what their slogan is. <laughs> I think it's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, as we mentioned, with how much the renewables are of global energy production, uh, currently hydropower dominates renewable energy ge- or renewable electricity generation, and it accounts for two thirds of renewable electricity generation globally. Uh, 
Uh, and ex it, it is expected to grow by at least 45% by 2040. And right now it currently makes up 16% of the world's electricity needs mm. in total. So now we get to get into the history. <laughs> in the same way that Davis got distracted by the history of timekeeping in our previous episode on time, I got distracted by the history of water wheels. So here we go. We are not nerds. Uh, <laughs> so humans have been harnessing the power of water for thousands of years. This is one of our most ancient technologies, I would say, especially in terms of like... Including for clocks. <laughs> <laughs> you brought it back. Um, <laughs> so... And this is where our knowledge on the subject diverges, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so from about 4,000 BCE, before Common Era, up to the Common Era, we had water wheels. Uh, so this was, but then, you know, one CE, no more water wheels. No more water no, wheels. Just, yeah, obviously. Just, no, just kidding. Uh, so the water wheels were horizontal at first, uh, and used for like grinding of things. So you'd put like a water wheel in the, in the water horizontally. So like lay it down flat. Yeah. Like you put a, sorry, sorry, you got to edit a clap. Um, if, as a, imagine you're dropping like a waffle into the water. Well, I can imagine like a standard water wheel and on its side. Yeah. It, no, I, a waffle in the water. <laughs> I don't know. It seems weird to me, though. It is, that but that's where, where it started. started. But they were much less efficient than the vertical water wheel that mm. soon came into play. When was the gear invented? I guess the gear is kind of a key principle of making it vertical to also still use it as a mill. Where Probably. you need a horizontal motion eventually. That's true. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll answer that next time when <laughs> gears were invented. <laughs> um, yeah, so the vertical one was much more efficient, efficient, and then this started being used for mills. And if you have water that you're using to turn and power a mill, you get a water mill. If you've heard water mill. Classic Portmanteau right there, team. Uh, I love when it's very obvious <laughs> what the term means. Um, yeah, and this was a mechanical energy that could replace human or animal effort. And it was used in like ancient Greece to grind wheat into flour. Romans advanced the tech. Uh, I found... Uh, Sources that said in the 3rd century BCE, ancient Egyptians used Archimedes water screws for irrigation. And I didn't know about these things, but they're very cool, so I had to talk about them. Mm -hmm. So the Archimedes screw is a machine for raising water, allegedly invented by the ancient Greek scientist Archimedes, for removing water from the hold of a large ship. But so one form consists of a circular pipe enclosing a helix. So imagine a screw, mm -hmm. right? A really big screw, inclined at about an angle of 45 degrees. More like degrees. a drill bit. If you yeah. were trying to yeah. yeah. Yeah, or like like an auger, like a really big auger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you like angle this thing. It's like a tube with a giant screw drill bit in it. Uh, you angle it like 45 degrees into the water with the lower end dipping into the water. And then you rotate the device and the screw, it, the, the, the drill bit inside is like uh, pretty tight to the casing. So as you start turning the screw, it starts actually bringing water up. And I thought it was so cool. You should look them up. Archimedes screw. Yeah, we used to have one of these at the old science center. There was like a water table and it had an Archimedes screw. You could like crank it up and get the water to move like kind of 10 feet up or whatever. That's they're so cool. pretty. They're pretty neat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I told a couple of friends about it today and they're like, yeah, Archimedes screws, obviously. I was like, well, I was excited. Um, and then we get to uh, between 202 BCE up to 9 CE in China. They had uh, trip hammers that were powered by vertical set water wheels used to pound and haul grain, break ore, and were used in early papermaking. Hmm. So you're like pulp stuff a lot. 
And then uh, by about 500 CE, water wheels had spread throughout the world, but they were did not become popular until the 12th century because uh, slave and animal labor were still readily available. And if you have slaves who can do all the work for you, then the idea of like, oh, now I have a machine that can do all the work. And you're like, but I have all these slaves. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad by the 12th century, eventually we, we were moving past that a little bit. <laughs> Davis is skeptical. <laughs> okay, history of water wheels. Moving can, on. Moving on. <laughs> From ancient slavery. <laughs> to the 1700s in England. Definitely a fine society. Uh, but yeah, so then water wheels started being used in early factories to spin cotton. So kind of like uh, expanding the scope. I'm doing a lot of arm motions today. Expanding the scope of uh, the water wheels and what they're working on. And then we reached the 1800s. In the early 1900s, where turbine technology was developed and improved to increase power generation. And by 1878, in England, the world's first hydroelectric project powered a lamp in a country house in England. That would have been one brightly lit country house. Yeah, just that one lamp, apparently. But there you, that, that was the a record I found of the first one. So I was like, all right. You think about it like 1896 is not really that long ago. 1878. Still, you know, <laughs> it's not really. Yeah, it's pretty... You know, it's a little over 100 years ago, but still, yeah. like, pretty modern. Yeah, like 150 it's years, which is not long yeah. ago, seeing as we started talking at 4000 BCE, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. And then uh, a few years after that, 1882 in the U.S., the first plant to serve a system of private and commercial customers was opened in Wisconsin. So it was like, as soon as this technology started really being developed, it just snowballed. Like, more people grabbed on and they were like, ooh, this is good. Ooh, I like this. And they started really, really taking off. Um by 1892, so 10 years after that first plant in Wisconsin, uh, worldwide, there were hundreds of hydropower plants in operations. So these were more to power industry and business than personal homes, but still hundreds worldwide 10 years after the first plant, which is a pretty uh, intense growth rate, mm -hmm. you know? And then 1895, the Edward Dean Adams power plant at Niagara Falls was put in. I grew up in Ontario, so mm -hmm. Niagara Falls. Is it is that still what it's called? The power plant that's at Niagara <laughs> Falls? Because there is still like a, geo, um, a hydroelectric plant there. There is. And I was like, I'll do a bunch of research into Niagara Falls. And then I got really distracted by the history of water wheels. And I was like, <laughs> I spent too much time doing this. Uh, so I don't know. I'll, I'll I imagine it's probably it. still got the same name. It's just probably just been retrofitted with new technology over the years. Hopefully. I would imagine <laughs> over 100 years since 1895. Uh, I will look up the name for next I, time. Didn't they, like, shut off one of the sides of the falls once they, like, diverted the whole, like, falls I think so. to build it or something like that? Yeah. The, the falls stopped at one point, one mm -hmm. time, yeah. which was wild. So then from there we go to 1905 in China. They uh, developed a hydroelectric, hydroelectric station on the Zindian Creek, as I look quizzically at Davis, uh, near Taipei. Instead of capacity of 500 kilowatts. And then we're going to jump ahead a bit. 1940s in the U.S. Uh, President Roosevelt's policies. They're like the new green. What was it called? The Green Deal or? What was the new deal? deal? The it new was deal. the new deal yeah. after, the, after uh, the Great Depression. Yeah. No. Uh, and so these led to a lot of renewable um, energy stuff. Yeah. Like the Hoover Dam and the Grand Coulee Dam. And in the 1940s, hydroelectric was 40% of the country's electricity generation. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it's 6%. So it's changed a little bit. Yeah. 
a lot of the New Deal like stuff was about like infrastructure projects. So right. It wasn't just like yeah. so it was things that you could train and hire people to build so that people would be employed. Right. Mm -hmm. Was this also the time of the national parks projects? I think so. A lot. Yeah. I, that was also a lot of part the part of like the New Deal stuff. Although you might be actually you might be thinking about Teddy Roosevelt and not uh. FDR. Because Teddy Roosevelt is the one who pioneered the national park system. Okay. I'm thinking of and Ron Roosevelt. <laughs> FDR is the one who over who was a three-term president over World War II and he died in office. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Davis. You are welcome. <laughs> U.S. presidential history. Uh, and then we go from the 40s, so 1940s to the 70s. There are state-owned utilities built uh, significant hydropower developments throughout Western Europe, as well as the Soviet Union, North America, and Japan. Because it was the best way to meet growing energy demands. Because you need water, right? You need flowing water. Um, and it was often tied to the development of very energy-intensive industries like aluminum smelters and steel workers. So if you have a plant that's going to need a ton of energy and you can power with hydroelectric, that's a, like a cheap and efficient way to do it. Hmm. And then in the 80s and 90s, we had Brazil and China uh, becoming world leaders in hydroelectric power. So the... Uh, second largest dam in the world cur currently is the, oh, I should have looked up how to pronounce this, the Itaipu, I-T-A-I-P-U dam. This straddles Brazil and Paraguay. It was made in 1984 and its current capacity is 14,000 megawatts. And then the largest in the world is in China. It's the Three Gorges Dam and it is 22,500 megawatts. So some serious electricity producing uh, plants here. But also in the 80s and 90s, uh, started seeing funding and investment stagnate for hydroelectric projects. So this affected hydropower construction in the developing world, these air quotes, um, because concerns over environmental and social impacts. And work has been done since then to identify and mitigate these impacts. But there's some big ones. Yeah, particularly with even like you mentioned of the Three Gorges Dam, like... There were many, many villages that used to be at the site of the Three Gorges Dam, and they don't exist anymore because they're underwater. Ah, uh, yes, we will. We'll get to that in the social impacts, which is very soon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Actually, no, we're going to do environmental impacts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like following my notes. But keep that in mind because that is an absolutely true and gigantic problem with hydroelectric power. Uh, yeah, so environmental impacts, there are... Uh, things called fish injury, and uh, there's impacts on downstream water quality. So here's a substantial quote from, I believe this is from uh, the Energy BC website. By diverting water out of the water bodies for power, dams remove water needed for healthy in-stream ecosystems, thereby disrupting the natural river flows. Dams also slow down the flow of the river. Many fish species, such as salmon, depend on steady flows to flush them downriver early in their life, and guide them upstream years later to spawn. Slow reservoir pools disorient migrating fish and significantly increase the duration of their migration. So that can be a big problem. We have lots of, uh, I always hear coming out from BC issues with the salmon and uh, rivers and usually that rivers are drying up or there's just mm -hmm. a, the salmon population is really suffering. So I know that something as well with the Hoover, they say like the Colorado River is a lot weaker at its, you know, mm. point where it flows into the sea in California than it used to be. And part of that is not just because of the hydroelectric impacts of Hoover Dam, but, or that application, but also the irrigation applications yeah. for that area of the desert. Um, and they even believe that that shrinking of the Colorado River might be related to the ongoing drought in California. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. A lot of this, uh, 
uh, the water wheels were used for irrigation and things as well, right? So, mm-hmm. absolutely. And then uh, there's also problems. So we talked about like dams, right? Big, big holdings of water. And these uh, are big flood areas, right? And there'll be plants trapped in those flood areas that start to decompose. And decomposing plants uh, produce a lot of methane. Methane being one of the, uh, a very, very potent greenhouse gas. Methane is often, sometimes we refer to it as natural gas. Yeah. When we talk about like energy generation, um, and it's CH4, so it's a carbon molecule with four hydrogens. It burns really clean, but it in and of itself is like a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so they, uh, and with this whole, the greenhouse gas emissions in general from hydroelectric, the, if the, if the plants aren't like built with this in mind, the greenhouse gas emissions can actually be on par with fossil fuels, which is wild. You know, for something that is supposed like is mm-hmm. supposed to be a clean renewable energy, for the greenhouse gas emission to be on par with fossil fuels if the plants aren't designed with climate mitigation effects in the design stage is upsetting. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- but there's for some reason very limited data on greenhouse gas emission from these plants. So uh, more comprehensive data needs to be collected in order to fully understand the uh, the impact on climate that hydropower has. And then also just a just another fun thing to throw in there: uh, bacteria in that decaying vegetation that I talked about can actually uh, change mercury that can be found in rocks into a water soluble form, and then mercury can accumulate in the fish. And then it accumulates in us. Yeah. Classic bioaccumulation. Classic. Get, it'll get you every time. <laughs> uh, and then the social impacts, as Davis alluded to mm-hmm. so expertly earlier. Uh, so there are positive social impacts as well. There's some very, very big positive social impacts of hydro in that it, like, brings electricity to areas. And, I mean, even just and going... ends the Great Depression. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, even just going through, like, COVID and you think about, like, mm. oh, yeah, people worked from home. So they needed not only, like, they needed internet access, and then they needed electricity and all of this. And electricity is a big deal, you know? It's a big deal. And then uh, it can also improve irrigation, like we said, and it can improve flood prevention because you're you're more aware of being able to hold bodies of water for a long period of time. But there's some negatives. So uh, as Davis mentioned, with the Three Gorges Dam in China, uh, forced population displacement and impoverishment is a big problem because you need big swaths of land to make a giant reservoir of water. And uh, this is, so this is the same with any like land taking infrastructure project because you're taking land. People were there. Uh, So the huge size of this can displace up to hundreds of thousands of people and it can displace millions of people over uh, time and multiple projects to uh, places where this has been a very big problem are India and China, as Davis mentioned. And impoverishment after displacement is huge because often people uh, who were displaced were poor before they were displaced, and now they no longer have a home, and they are often inadequately compensated, if compensated at all. So that's a problem. Uh, And then sometimes dams fail. That's a really big problem, a huge impact, so much water, uh, displaces more people, it damages infrastructure, there's loss of life. And one of the worst ones uh, that I came across was in 1975, the Bangkeo. Bing Chow. Bang Chow. Say it again. Bing Chow. Bang Chow. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Q, a, Q makes that kind of ch sound. Uh, ah. Yeah. It's, it's B-A-N-Q-I-A-O. And I was like, hmm. And I'm probably not pronouncing it perfectly either. 
<laughs> we'll go with your way. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so this dam failed in China um, when Typhoon Nina came through in 1975, and it produced floods twice the 1,000-year flood level. So 1,000-year flood's a big flood already, and this was like double it. Uh, this caused the failure of this dam, along with 61 other dams and reservoirs, which killed 26,000 people in the floods. Uh, up to 145,000 were killed in the epidemics and the famine that occurred afterwards, and up to 10 or over 10 million people were impacted. So very big social risk when these projects fail. And then three problems uh, as well that are less, less huge compared to the displacement are boomtown formation around major constructions. Uh, Davis, I know we have talked about like boomtowns before. It happens a lot in Alberta around oil, right? Like hell on wheels when they were building the train in the States. Oh. And they had, there was like a town of the workers that would essentially follow the railroad every few months would pick up and move down railroad to where they were building the next leg of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, it happens a lot in Alberta with the oil and, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. people's a bunch of people will spring up basically where the oil workers need to be. And then it, uh, it's a sudden influx of construction workers and people to often remote areas, creating things like labor camps. Yeah. When they built the Hoover Dam, they literally built like a temporary community mm -hmm. for all the workers where they built like 300 homes in like a matter of months and stuff like that. And they were all the same kind of like two room <laughs> house and all this stuff. It's quite, it's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine if you lived in one of those areas beforehand, and then all of a sudden you have hundreds of people mm -hmm. moving into your town who have, they know they're not going to be there for a long period of time. So there's a different investment in it. They, they deal with the space very differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's also, there can be downstream unanticipated changes in agro production systems. So like Davis mentioned with the, <clears throat> it was the Hoover Dam. Yeah. Affects uh, the Colorado River, which flows out through California into the ocean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so this can have a, a big impact, especially in areas near wide, gentle uh, valley rivers, like the Zambezi and the Senegal rivers in Africa, where agriculture has historically been based on the natural recurrence of these annual floods. So uh, where they are able to absorb flood waters into their agricultural strategies. They, they're used to the floods coming, so they... they They've designed their whole agriculture to be, okay, when the floods come, we have to have plants that can withstand it and all that sort of thing. Um, and damming the annual limited floods uh, and the flow of rich nutrients deeply disrupts recessional agriculture, which is what this floodwater one is called. Uh, and then finally, you can also have loss of cultural heritage assets. So you can imagine if you come and you say like, we're going to put a big dam here, but what if there are underground remains of significant historical importance or buildings or places of cultural, spiritual, or religious meanings. Um, and they could be recent or uh, from the past as well. I think like stuff like cemeteries, places of worship, all these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, so hydroelectric, definitely good in theory, but in doing this research, there's some, some big problems that need to be addressed before hydroelectric is really the renewable energy that I think, that I always thought it was growing up. Mm. I was like, Let, yeah, we just use water. That makes sense. What a good, clean energy. But then you got all mm -hmm. the stuff around it because we're people and we complicate stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's not even talking about like, you know, there's always been this idea of like, how do you generate power using the tides and the waves and things like that? So you can see these kind of neat um, engineering designs of like these kind of you know, flotation devices that would like mm -hmm. go up and down with waves and it would push, you know, it would drive a shaft that would push a turbine and stuff uh. like that. So uh, those technologies are a bit further off because they, there's a lot more, a lot more moving, a lot more technology that needs to be like kind of invented and pioneered for those types of things. And then like 
the forces that you have to withstand yeah. and the gradient of forces is much greater. Whereas like you build a dam, you know how much water you need to hold and then you know how much like you can ultimately sluice out at any given time. Yeah. But uh, with a wave, like with a wave generator, how do you know what if you get some, you know, crazy storm and now yeah. the waves are 20 feet high and so much force versus like, well, it's a regular sunny day and there's yeah. just a little bit of the, the lapping of the waves and stuff. Yeah. So. And my guess with something like that is if you're working on the big tides and the big waves, you're working in the ocean and working yeah. in the ocean is just a nightmare mm-hmm. because it's salty and it's mm-hmm. the temperature changes and yeah. there's animals in it and there's lots of plastic mm-hmm. in it now too and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. So that is water, water, water energy. Book two. (laughs) Solar energy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you're probably, you probably as a child had, um, had a little calculator and had that little, little solar cell on it. You ever have one of those calculators? Like every calculator I ever had. You would like block it and see if you get your calculator to turn off. And the cheap ones would. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've had so many of those where it's just like. But it's kind of neat too because it's like it's it's off. It'll be like in the the cupboard or whatever. It's not getting any light, and then you pull it out, and then like the screen just like sort of slowly yeah. brightens up. But I didn't it, even think about that when we said solar. But yeah, yeah. no, I'll, yeah, that's the the main way I interacted with it. Yeah, exactly. So if you had a solar powered calculator as a child, you had a solar panel it's sitting right there in your hands. The solution to all of Earth's <laughs> energy needs, right there, right there, just ready to go, powering your little your little. Uh, nine-digit device um (laughs) so yeah so uh i didn't go as much into the history of uh of of solar energy davis learned from the time episode i was uh, apparently jealous of all the history he got to learn so i had to do it Mm -hmm. so uh there's a there's a number of different uses for solar energy uh a number of different ways that you can use the energy from the sun uh to do work and heat homes and do these types of things so but we'll talk about it first from like an electrical energy generation perspective. Okay. So say passive and stuff like that for later. So basically what all solar is really principled upon is the use of a photovoltaic cell. So again, you think about your little calculator, that little strip, that is the photovoltaic cell. It might be like three or four little panels that are, this This is where, that are capturing the sunlight and converting it into electricity. Is it because, is this because it's taking photons and turn them into like voltage? That's, that's. That's very close. Yeah, that's a lot of where photovoltaic comes from. This should have been obvious, but I'm very proud of myself. Yeah. So I always like to think of the the pursuit of um, solar energy, the use of the the energy of the sun to generate electricity is very similar. Uh, I always likened it or analog- um, an analogy I always like to use is like a plant, right? Yeah, of so course. So photosynthesis. Photosynthesis. It's the same idea. With photosynthesis, you're trying to absorb a photon to drive a chemical process in the plant, use the energy of that photon to create sugar. It's a very complicated process. involves all these proteins and cellular machinery and stuff like that. Plants are so cool. And it's very neat. It's it's incredible when you think about like just random chance of evolution, like evolving all these proteins that could do this type of work and yeah. like literally capture pro- protons from the sun to make sugar. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Pretty neat. <laughs> so you would think, well, like solar comparatively super easy, right? Like, well, I could just use all these things that I have lying around. But again, it's, it's, to create the type of efficiency that a plant has, we're like nowhere near that. No, we're not even close. And again, it becomes like, you know, you've got millions of billions of years of evolution and this complex cellular cellular machinery that like human beings can't really re- recreate yet. So we have to do it through like other physical methods. So photovoltaic cell makes use of semiconductor materials. So semiconductors, uh, we talked a little bit in the last episode about silicon. 
Yes. And uh, just, we, I think in one of the episodes, we talked a little bit about like, well, why, you know, there's always this like sci-fi concept of like, well, what if life was silicon-based rather yeah. than carbon-based? Because silicon has four valence electrons. Good old Star Trek. Yeah. But silicon's a little bit less flexible than carbon is and how it bonds to things. So, but it's turned out that that same inflexibility makes it really good for computers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is sort of where semiconductor technology really kind of came from. So semiconductor, so you think about an inert material or an insulator doesn't conduct electricity, right? So glass doesn't really conduct electricity. Whereas you've got something like, you know, metal like iron. Or water. Or water is a good one as well. um, That will conduct electricity and allow electrons to travel through that material. Semiconductor falls sort of somewhere in the middle. And semiconductors are kind of tunable as well. As you can create semiconductors that are more resistive and more, you know, transitive in terms of how they allow current to flow through them. The way that semiconductors work is based off of this sort of principle of you have of p type and n type is often how it's talked about okay so p being positive and n being negative ah. so to really understand this it, it gets kind of complicated there's a lot of like there's like essentially a level of quantum mechanics involved and then Fun. like crystal chemistry and stuff like that but you think about a silicon crystal is all of these four valence electron um atoms all arranged in a little lattice based on like the energies that they want to be configured at and they form a crystal and Electrons can move through this crystal, right? Like, among, you know, it's a big electrical field, essentially. So what you do is you take, so if you're P-type t- P doping something, you take a few of those silicon atoms and you replace them with boron, which has three valence electrons. So it has one fewer electron. And you build, again, you create this big lattice, this new crystal structure where it's the same structure because it's mostly silicon, but every so often, every few incidents, incident points it's a piece of boron instead so it creates a deficit of electrons in this structure behaviorally it's still the same as a silicon crystal but now every so often it's got these boron you could almost call them impurities and they are sometimes in the function of a semiconductor that forms what we call holes these holes of charge right because now it's po- electrons are negatively charged you have fewer of them so this is a positively sort of has positive characteristics it's not okay. positively charged because all of the individual atoms have the right number of electrons, mm-hmm. but it has this positive character because the lattice as a whole has a bit fewer electrons than it's really expecting to have. Okay. I think impurities is a really good way to, mm-hmm. to think about it, right? Because it's like, oh well, yeah, it's like, it's like, here's a big piece of bread. Now we put some seeds in it. Like it break it up. Exactly. That's a, that's a good way to kind of look at it. Right? <laughs> Apparently all of my references will be uh, baked goods. Well, and, and another way to think about this too is like in the way, like if you know anything about how like metal alloys work, right? I don't. So <laughs> iron is a pure metal. It's an element, right? Yes. So you can, you can have pure iron, oh, yes, but yeah, iron only has, iron because it's a pure element has certain weaknesses and it has certain strengths, right? You think about oxygen. Exactly. Well, and just in terms of its its physical strength, like it's, um, what its tensile strength is, how much force, how, how you can make it into things. Whereas steel, which is a combination of iron, carbon, and... Is it tin? Yeah, I think it's tin. Um, no, it's not aluminum, I don't think. Um, I think it is tin, but, you know, so steel is a alloy of several different elements, metallic elements together, organized in slightly different structure. And that gives it different characteristics. So steel is a lot lighter and stronger than pure iron. This right? is like stainless steel would be another alloy. Yeah, exactly. Of it's okay. all these different alloys. Essentially, it's the same idea. Is that like, but rather than like a metal alloy, we're talking about a crystal with some of the parts changed out to give it different characteristics. Okay, so just like a much smaller scale. 
or or well crystals versus like solid metals essentially okay. but okay. it's essentially the same thing so with an n-type you are then doing the opposite where rather than using boron you're using something with more valence electrons than your base silicone silicon so you are using generally phosphorus which has five valence electrons but there's other there's other elements and what this does is it creates it's the same effect it's you've got this lattice of silicon but every so often there's this phosphorus so there's a increase in the number of electrons to the lattice so that gives mm. it this negative characteristic okay you smack the two together you, create, <laughs> you smack the p-type and the n-type together a lot of chemistry is based on what happens at the surface of things you think about a big crystal deep within the crystal is pretty stable right yeah. it's, it's connected to all these things around it but at the surface and about to a depth of about five atoms deeper you know five to ten atoms deep is what we call the surface of an object and the chemistry changes slightly like the front lines exactly right because these elect these atoms are now on their um you ever heard of like edge effects for forests nope. right so like with forest with deforestation one of the things is is that like the edge parts of the forest, they are not as shelters the inner parts, so they're oh, they're more okay. susceptible to certain environmental changes or impacts and things like that. Or, to use more baked goods, we're on it now, mm. like baking a loaf of bread, the crust versus the inner yeah, part of the bread. Exactly. So you have different characteristics, right, on the surface of most objects. Uh, and this is just like a big thing in chemistry. So with a P-type and N-type, you kind of smack them together, and it creates a P-N junction. So you have I like these... how literal, like how direct these names are. Mm -hmm. It's helpful. That's engineers for you. <laughs> um, so you, and physicists. So you have this PN junction. Curve. So on one side, the P side, you have this positive characteristic and you have holes, areas where there should be an, elect an extra electron, but there isn't. There's only three because of the way you've constructed it. And then on the N type, you have the, the extra electrons, right? And when they meet, it creates so you think about with chemistry, one of the things I always had to get my head around was that like you have to think about millions and millions and millions and millions of things happening all at the same time all at once when you think about chemistry. But you're going to think very linearly when you solve chemistry problems or you talk about them because it's the only way to do it. Yeah. But you have to think about all these processes happening simultaneously. So at the PN junction, every so often, one of those electrons is going to leave the N-type and go to the P-type, right? Oh, okay. And fill that hole. Oh. Right? Because it's got this excess on one side and it's, but this is going to be happening back and forth and is going to essentially be in equilibrium. Okay. But what it actually does is it gives the N side of the PN junction. So this is on the negatively doped, the extra electron side. It actually gives it a positive characteristic. Yeah. Cause it's pulling electrons away from the phosphorus. Exactly. Yeah. So whereas before it had, it had negative characteristic, it still has all the same amount of electrons that it needs yeah. to be the, happy. The individual atoms are happy. Exactly. But now it's losing an electron to the other side and it actually gives it a positive characteristic. Atoms are unhappy. Exactly. And the same is happening on the other side. It is accepting an electron. So it's the P side but it's getting a bit of a negative charge. And again, this is happening in equilibrium. So it's not really creating an electric charge, but these, these little transitions are happening back and forth all the time. And it creates an electric field. So this is what a lot of semiconductor technology is based on. Why does that make it a semiconductor? Because you can control basically by input or output how much energy you're drawing out or how much energy you're putting in. You can control how the electrons move back and forth between the oh. layers. So it gives you more control over versus like you think about an insulator versus a conductive material on off switch. So like on conducting off insulating semiconductor allows you to go like everywhere in between. Oh. Right. So it gives you these kind of gradient points. So that's more of like an electrical physical phenomenon. How it's used in a photovoltaic cell is that you either have 
you have a very thin layer of one of the types and then the opposite type, a very thick layer on the other side. And then it's kind of wrapped up in all of the conducting metals. So that's why when you look at a solar panel, it's all these little black cells that look kind of like glass. Mm -hmm. And then there's this big wrap of metallic material, like a grid around it. Yeah. Right. So this is essentially what's now creating all the circuitry, the, the current, the electrical components to allow a current to pass through this. So what happens is a photon from the sun, which is just sunlight. A little, little packet of sun. little packet of sunlight hits the surface and it penetrates through the first thin layer and into the base. And so typically most, most solar panels on Earth right now are, um, like the most ones that are available commercially are P-type, where the P is the base and then you have a very thin layer of the N-type on top. It's just they're cheaper to manufacture. And so basically what happens is the energy comes in, it's going to strike one of the electrons in the P-type base and it's going to give it that energy, right? When they hit, it's going to give it all this energy and it's going to excite it. And that's going to cause it to jump up into the N-type. Wait, the sun gets through the N-type into the P-type? Yeah, because okay. you think about it, it's like we're talking about like micron levels, right? Yeah. And it's, and even the, there's just always going to be this element of being able to pass through, right? Okay, it's photons are like super teeny, teeny tiny. Exactly. And not all, and you're right, not all of them are going to get through. Some of them are going to get blocked or just reflected by the other materials and stuff. And this is where some of the difficulty of engineering these surfaces comes in, okay. is how do you make it absorb enough sunlight and also, you know, reflect enough that you're not overcharging your device and mm. stuff like that. So then what happens is that, so now you have this electron that is going to get freed from its atom that's holding it in place, and it's going to go and fill that, go and meet that positive charge, that positive characteristic on the PN junction, and it's going to cross, go across that with enough energy. And then what the metal does is you are creating now the circuit where you are pulling, basically you are creating an area for that electron to go. Because what the electron on its own, if you just put a semiconductor down and like irradiate it with sun, it would the electrons would eventually repel each other back from the N-type layer, right? You build up all these electrons, negative charges don't want to be next to each other. They would push back against each other with enough force until it all evened itself out. Yeah. This is again, one of those flow things about semiconductors, how it prevents too much like electricity from going through all at one time. But if you attach something that you want to do work, like a light bulb, if you create a current, you can pull the electron out of the layer that oh. it's being promoted to. It has somewhere to go now, it's going to power whatever device is on the end of it, and then it's going to come back up the other side. So that's how a solar panel works. So the P-type tends to be the most common one. They're a little bit easier to develop. They're also more commonly used for space applications because of their cheapness, and they just work better in space. They're more resistant to some of the solar radiation, other types of solar radiation that you experience when you're in space that you don't on planet Earth. But they're actually saying that like the N-type on Earth probably have a better chance of being more efficient because they don't, they're not, uh, they don't succumb to the same type of defects that the P-type do. So the P-type with a lot of the sunlight hitting this boron doped surface, boron can react with oxygen and Ooh. it, uh, and it creates these defects that actually get worse with more light exposure. That makes sense. So it feeds yeah. into itself and eventually you have to replace these panels. I was going to ask about like the usage and how long they can last for, because mm -hmm. the systems on their own can be quite happy, but yeah, I guess if you have something like boron and oxygen is... A very uh, reactive, super element. reactive. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that like stands in the way or like one of the transitions that's still happening. But because the P-type were so much cheaper, the technology of them is a little bit further along. They're a little bit cheaper to produce. They're more the common type that you would see. Okay. You know, you go buy your couple hundred dollar solar, solar panel at Canadian Tire to put on your vehicle or I whatever. I did it every time I'm in Canadian yeah. Tire. <laughs> it's, you know, that's a P-type 
uh, solar panel. I would put money on it, right? But yeah, so that's sort of like, that's sort of how most of the solar energy that we think about when you think of the fields and the fields of arrays of solar panels or the, you know, the International Space Station with its big solar panels and stuff like that. That's mostly what we're thinking of. There are other ways you can apply um, solar energy to do to provide our energy needs. One of the big ones that we sometimes don't think about when we think about electricity generation is we we forget sometimes that like we still mostly heat our homes with natural gas because it's easier to combust something to create heat than it is to take something electrical and convert it into heat. Right. Right. Especially if you think about like, well, if you generate, you know, if you're using a natural gas power plant to spin a turbine to generate electricity (laughs) and then you're going to use that electricity to go back into heat there's a lot of loss at each of those steps lots of steps yeah so what you can do is you can actually create passive solar heating and cooling systems where you combine these like photovoltaic cells and thermal cells which are basically just like pieces of material that can absorb a lot of solar energy and get really hot and then you transfer it to like potable water in a roof like held system and that will generate some of your hot water needs and then the electrical generation will do kind of the rest of the work for you Hmm. so that's one of them and then sometimes you'll see these ones that are um, solar concentrating so this is again more using the thermal energy of the sun rather than the electrical energy from the photons would that be the infrared radiation well kind of but you're using all the visible light and you're basically collecting as much of that visible light into one point as possible and concentrating Mm. it so there are these parabolic mirrors that all get angled towards a collection tower and then that collection tower is used all that energy is directed to heat like a super like a thermal insulated fluid so it'll be something like a heavy oil and you can heat it up to multiple you know 300 400 degrees celsius and then you transfer that heat into like a water source and you boil it to steam and then you generate power through the use of turbines and that has some of that has its advantages versus like traditional photovoltaic solar where you're only getting power when the sun is shining yeah because you can collect sunlight all day store the temperature in this massive reservoir of you know high like high temperature fluid and then slowly seep off that temperature as you need it to generate power by seeping it out to you know water and stuff like that and driving turbines and whatnot makes sense yeah there's so many steps to all of these absolutely it's like this is how we capture the energy and then we have to trans we have to change it then we have to change it again and then we finally get a thing well and that's sort of one of the interesting things about green the green energy transition in general and our power usage which like i want us to kind of reflect on towards the end a little bit after we go through all of them uh but one i do want to touch on while we're talking about solar and I think it, this will kind of come up, I think, in some of the other coming ones as well, because it'll be it's important for wind generation as well and even with water. Um, but as we move towards some of these green technologies that you're only getting when certain things are happening, like the sun is shining or, you know, the wind is going and things like that, is how we store this energy to be used at a later date. Mm-hmm. So like right now, a lot of the energy that we use is produced the moment that we need it. So, again, you think about a natural gas fired plant, they can just burn more gas to spin the turbines more to produce more energy within reason, right? There's always difficulties with that if there's huge surges in electrical usage all of a sudden. But you can't always do that. You can't just all of a sudden make the sun burn brighter and produce more solar energy or, or, you know, pop up a few more solar panels to produce the more, the energy you need. Mm -hmm. So you have to store it in places that it can be taken out of later. And battery technologies actually for solar 
one of the bigger barriers to towards this application like all over the world. Yeah. Uh, and so that right now there's a few different technologies that are being looked at for grid scale energy storage. So you've probably seen some of those like if you've seen like the Tesla house battery or some of those other ones. Now that a lot of people are moving towards some level of solar installation in their own homes, what a lot of these companies are now selling as well is a special battery unit for your home where you are going to store some of the energy from your solar panels for your use at a later date. Rather than normally it, before these batteries it used to be that while your solar panels were hooked up and you were using electricity during the day, you would be drawing primarily from the solar panels up to the point that you were overcharged, you know, overdrawing their power output, yeah. then you're pulling from the grid. But if there are times during the day that you're not using your solar energy, you're actually just putting it back into the grid to be used other places. Often you get like a credit from your energy company for oh, stuff okay. like that. But it means that at night when you're not getting the solar energy, you're just full on pulling from the grid and you're paying your premiums or whatever. Yeah. The Calgary Science Center actually has a really, mm -hmm. uh, an, an exhibit that describes this very well. Yeah. As you were talking, I was like, why do I know this? And I was like, oh, I work yeah. with one. <laughs> so most of those are like the same type of battery that's really like in your phone and in most applications now. They're like a lithium ion battery. Okay. And the way that that works is you use lithium ions, the physical elements, to transit charge back and forth between the anode and cathode in a solution because lithium lithium is so small as an atom it's third only to hydrogen and uh, helium it can move through right. these it can carry a lot of charge without much loss and things like that so that's why lithium ion has become the big really efficient battery that is in use for most applications today oh. but lithium is pretty rare you know it's it's rare-ish in the earth's surface and like these large-scale applications of them you know take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these lithium cells. So right. they're not the most efficient. One that I have always found super fascinating because I had a professor who did some research into this area was molten salt batteries. So this is like you literally take salts, diff all these different salts. Um, so not just like NaCl, but like, you know, different metal salts and things like that. And you take them to their molten temperatures and then you design them in such a way that their densities sort them out based into anode cathode and then the like electrolytic layer and you can then have current char go through like so basically as you pull charge out the ions move between the layers and then they can be like recharged and stuff like that so that's how the energy in one spot the salt will be like you will get that electron or whatever and it will transfer it through the electrolytic layer to the other side and then it can be pulled through. So in the same way that you think about the semiconductor is the two layers and then the end junction and then you're pushing energy over the junction and then pulling it out on the other side. You're kind of doing the same thing but with now like a molten liquid battery. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds really like dramatic and like evil villainy well and even like the one of the that's actually so funny that you bring it up that way because that's like one of the photos that my professor showed us to like show this technology was literally like a swimming pool of molten salt oh so it's God. just like this red glowing liquid <laughs> with like a catwalk over top of it it literally looked like something Ugh. out of a super villain lair so you just um, throw batman in yeah exactly <laughs> And the, advantage, and the advantage of this is that, one, these types of salts are generally pretty cheap. They can be handled at room temperature until they need to be moltenized. <laughs> and then, and as well, they're very durable. Like, they last long, long periods of time, and they can withstand multiple, you know, charge and recharge cycles. Yeah, they're, like, super robust. Yeah, absolutely. So, I guess there's, like, the energy mm -hmm. you have to put in to make them molten. And that's a big cost. The high, that high operating temperature is a huge barrier. One, how do you create vessels that can withstand having salt be molten in them? Yeah, right? salt is so bad on its own. And yeah. then molten stuff is so bad on its own yeah. in terms of like 
effect on container. Mm -hmm. It's something like even to take, uh, I think it's to take normal table salt and make it molten. It's something between 500 and 700 degrees (gasps) Celsius is like the melting point of salt. Oh my God. Yeah, because it's an ionic bond, right? So it's almost this full transfer of electron from one, uh, you know, one crystal to the other in a crystal lattice. And it's very difficult to break those bonds apart. No. Yeah. We don't want to. We We're found our partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Other ones that are interesting are things like redox flow, which I'd never really heard of before, but it's this idea of like you have a redox reaction on what, like so between you have two reservoirs of this fluid and then when they meet, they undergo a, re- a redox reaction and you use the electrical draw to drive that reaction in one direction and then you can recharge it to drive the, the reaction in the other direction between two like redox pairs. It's like a little bit more complicated than I fully understand. Ah. I don't know what it's like wide applications would really be um it seems like in terms of grid level application there's a lot of attention towards like either just like kind of brute forcing it with lots of lithium ion cells and things of that nature or kind of one of these um newer technologies like molten salt the problem with any of the the newer technologies is you already have older technologies implemented Mm -hmm. right it's a problem with wind power as well of like okay well we've, we've developed all these new things but we already have this incredibly expensive uh, system in place that like maybe was put in place like 15 years ago and so the price of that has gone way down and you could like retrofit it but a lot of the newer developments like you can't retrofit lithium ion batteries to be molten salt batteries mm-hmm. right like it's a mm-hmm. new cost and a new technology and then yeah. if you've already invested in this other one it it can be a hard sell mm-hmm. absolutely so yeah so that's kind of an overview kind of of solar and some of its kind of strengths and drawbacks a little bit and how the technology works, which I think was really kind of the interesting part of this is like mm-hmm. how exactly that photovoltaic cell works. Yeah, I've never really understood. Yeah. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. you absorb energy from the sun and then it you use it for other stuff. And it's important to remember too that photovoltaic cells are still very like inefficient yeah. in terms of like how we talk about them. Like if you think about the most efficient gas or like... um combustion engine is something like 30 some percent i think it's an airplane turbine is the most efficient um because you're like losing a lot of energy to to heat transfer and friction and all these other things nice light too Mm -hmm. if it's explosion based yep yeah exactly you're losing all energy and all that you can't capture to create force or you know energy in any other way uh and it's something like with I, i don't know what i think the most efficient photovoltaic cells now are like just in the like low teens like dozens of percent like 12 percent kind of it's very low still but this is talking about like when you're thinking about like all of the radiant energy of the sun that hits it (laughs) so it's still a decent amount of electricity but one of the drawbacks to solar is it is like these huge installations of solar panels to generate the electricity that you need yeah Mm -hmm. and to do if you do it in a remote area how do you get that electricity from your remote location to your uh to your city centers and whatnot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then people are like, but what if it's cloudy that day? And you're like, that's why we need better batteries. Yeah, exactly. Store exactly. from sunny days. All right. Okay. Book three, wind. Wind. Thank you for those beautiful atmospheric sounds. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And we are back to uh, history stuff. But going to wind from solar makes a lot of sense because, as I found a quote, Uh, I think this is from the Canadian Encyclopedia. Wind energy is obtained from moving air. The motion results from the heating and cooling of the Earth. Thus, wind energy is an indirect form of solar energy. Ah, A perfect uh, link. (laughs) (laughs) And then 
<laughs> they were uh, early harnessing of wind energy way back, sailing and boats and stuff. That's just straight up. We're going to put up a big sheet of fabric and the wind is going to push it and we're going to move. So in a much less like technical or mechanical way than we think now, but that's wind energy, man, pushing your boats along. Mm -hmm. And then we get to windmills. So uh, current ones that we that we use to generate electricity are wind turbines, but windmills are like what's all over the Netherlands. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you can't get through a conversation of windmills without talking about the Netherlands. Oh yeah, I found some sources that were like, yeah, and then in England they blah blah blah, and I was like, the Netherlands, man, like they're everywhere. Fat uh, wooden shoes. What? Clogs. Uh, there are clogs in the Netherlands. <laughs> I didn't know. It's a traditional, traditional footwear. I thought you said min shoes. Or, I had no idea. Anyway, uh, back to the second millennia BCE. Uh, so this is from 2000 to 1001 BCE. There's a Babylonian ruler named... Hammurabi. Ha Hammurabi. Thank yeah, you, Davis. Yeah, Hammurabi. Uh, who supposedly had plans for irrigation windmills, but there's no proof this was actually actualized. Uh, and then you can jump forward to the first century uh, CE, common era. You have Heron of Alexandria used windmills for an early form of an organ to play some music. Hmm. Uh, and then in China and Tibet, uh, windmills were being used as like prayer wheels and things like this. And then we jump ahead to the 8th and 9th century. Windmills, as we know them, uh, start to appear and end wind pumps. So a windmill is any of various machines for grinding, pumping, etc. driven by the force of the wind acting upon a number of vanes or sails. So, you know, just think of your classic windmill. Those are like nice big... Veins or sails are getting pushed by the wind. Uh, and a wind pump is a windmill used for pumping water. Nice and direct term again. Mm -hmm. um, and these started to appear in the 8th and 9th century in the Middle East and Western Asia and began spreading from there with design continually being improved upon through history. And then, yeah, my next note is literally so many windmills in the Netherlands. <laughs> uh, the Netherlands had a lot of windmill-based industry that had persisted for centuries. They really became like a very dominant part of uh, Netherlands industry. And a lot of this was used for grinding grain. A lot of windmills were used for grinding grain. Because a, a, a windmill, like kind of like your standard size, can do the work of 500 men. So it really cuts down on that human, that manual labor. And I actually got that fact. This is why all my references have been baked good related. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, this, this fact is from the Great British Bake Off, season one, episode three. So how much can you really trust it? I'm just They're kidding. Talking to experts, man. <laughs> I know. I, yeah. I know. <laughs> it's, it's cool. I've learned a lot mm -hmm. about the history of baking and things. Um, but yeah, very cool. Uh, and then when uh, people from like Europe and overseas immigrated to North America, they brought this knowledge of windmills and they made lots and lots of wind pumps. By the 1930s in North America, there were 600,000 wind pumps. Mm -hmm. uh, and many of which are still active today in remote regions because it helps you get water. You know, but how many windmills do you need to replace one Conan the Barbarian? I, I didn't do that research. <laughs> in the original Conan the Barbarian movie, he, after he's like imprisoned, he's like, I haven't his, seen this. His, so. Yeah, so his village is like attacked when he's a child. It's like parents are murdered. It's classic, classic sword <laughs> and sorcery stuff. Um, they like, I just remember because like the sequence as the credits are going is like him growing up, but he's like. Uh, imprisoned but he's like forced to push this like turbine the whole time oh. so it's like a grind style that he's just like in the middle of nowhere that he's just constantly pushing. I don't even think it's hooked up to a mill I, he's just like tasked to walk in this circle just forever punishment. but it turns him into Arnold Schwarzenegger so like I yeah. mean how can you complain about it yeah, that's, you... that's who, it's, who who plays Conan in the original movie there's your workout regime 
Yeah, just yeah, <laughs> try to do the work of a windmill. <laughs> the workout for 500 men. Yeah. Yeah, grind faster. We need our bread. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then we start getting, from there, we get into the wind turbines. So this is the energy, uh, electricity producing ones. Uh, first one as early as 1887 in Scotland is the first windmill for electricity production. And then in the early 1900s, so 1903 and 04, uh, scientist Paul Lacour discovered that fast rotating wind turbines with fewer rotor blades were most efficient in generating electricity production. And we can see this with all the wind turbines we see. They're all three bladed, mm -hmm. right? Fewer blades. Traditionally, the windmills, I think, of all have four. But we need them to spin faster. It's not just to, it's not just to grind grain. It's to produce electricity. Mm -hmm. And then by the early 1900s, many wind pump windmills were starting to be used to generate electricity as a secondary function. So if you can get it to kind of be producing more energy than you need to spin or to grind your grain, then or to, I guess, the wind pumps to pull up water, then you can also use them to generate electricity. Uh, 1920s, a bit of an aside, the first vertical axis wind turbine was created. They're called Darius turbines or egg beaters. They look super weird. I put a picture in for Davis. Uh, it looks like, take like an eye shape, shape of an eye, and you put it on its side. And it, yeah, it looks like an egg beater that you would find like <laughs> in a kitchen. It's very weird. Uh, so I wanted to include it. Darius, D-A-R-R-I-E-U-S. And then in 1941 in the U.S., the first megawatt-class turbine was created, which had 75-foot blades. So big. I, I didn't realize the scale of wind turbines until I started doing research for this. Um, in the 1950s, the U.K. began powering part of their electricity grid with wind turbines. 1970s saw increased interest, research, and funding for wind turbines due to uh, ever-increasing oil and gas price trends. They Prices were going up, and they foresaw they were going to keep going up. So they're like, oh... The wind! That's just here anyway. Let's use it. Um, and then the 1980s, USA built the first wind farm in New Hampshire. Uh, it's 20 turbines. But unfortunately, it was a failure. Because the turbines broke down and the developers uh, overestimated the wind resource in the area. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the, a lot of these uh, green energies have these kind of speckled pasts of like, oh, yeah, we're really hopeful. Oh, we didn't do it right. Whoops. <laughs> uh, and then... In 1991, in Denmark, the first offshore wind farm was built, which is where we see a lot of them now. And in 2018, uh, wind energy in Canada generated enough electricity to power 3.3 million homes, which was 5% of Canada's energy use. There's quite the large uh, wind farm here in Alberta if you drive down to Waterton. Oh, There's I haven't been there. tons and tons on, along the drive down oh. south there. Lots of lots of wind turbines in some of those regions. Mm -hmm. cool. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Yep. And uh, these wind turbines, as they spin in the wind, are producing electricity. By, all right, I have a, I have a, a long quote. <laughs> a wind turbine turns wind energy into electricity using the aerodynamic force from the rotor blades, which work like an airplane wing or helicopter rotor blade. When wind flows across the blade, the air pressure on one side of the blade decreases. The difference in air pressure across the two sides of the blade creates both lift and drag. The force of the lift is stronger than the drag, and this causes the rotor to spin. The rotor connects to a generator, either directly, if it's a direct drive turbine, or through a shaft and a series of gears, a gearbox, that speed up the rotation and allow for physically smaller a physically smaller generator. This translation of aerodynamic force to rotation of a generator creates electricity. And the TLDR, the too long didn't read version, is wind turns propeller-like blades of a turbine around a rotor, which spins a generator, which creates electricity. 
I just wanted to do the TLDR. So. <laughs> so you gave us the long version. I gave you the long just, one. Just to yeah. set up your own TLDR joke. I felt like I was doing a lot of history, so I had to throw the science back in. <laughs> what, um. with the world's longest <laughs> quote. Yeah, talking about yeah the air difference and the pressure. Better, better and... make sure you don't trip the, uh, well, what was the, the plagiarism uh, software they used to use in universities? Oh, no. Yeah. Well, I have all my I have all my links, so I... Yeah, and I tell you when sources. I'm, yeah, I'm telling you when I'm doing a direct quote <laughs> by the way I speak. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and, and sometimes like Davis was mentioning with the different metals and things. So when the wind turns the blades, uh, oppositely charged magnets attached mm -hmm. to the rotor rotate within a coil of copper wire. And this generates electricity through electromagnetic induction. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. So yep. working in a few ways. Yep. Uh, and there are different types of, as I've already kind of alluded to. So you've got land-based uh, wind turbines. These range in size from being able to produce 100 kilowatts to several megawatts. Megawatts being a thousand times greater, hundred times than a kilowatt. A uh, thousand. Thousand. Uh, so, yeah. So quite a quite an so. order of magnitude. I think yeah, megas ten to the six. So, oh no, I'll look it up quick. I was gonna look it up, and then I was like, Davis will know. I <laughs> always forget. I always forget the. Um, I always forget the large side because we spend so much time as chemists on the oh, small the side. Yeah, yeah. So I always remember that side. Yeah. And then I deal with biology and it's just like, yeah, it's that big. It's like in the centimeters and the meters range. Yeah, 10 to the 6, <laughs> factor of 1 million. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So, so 100 times greater. So your land-based ones can be from relatively small to quite, quite large. Uh, they're often grouped together into wind plants, like Davis mentioned on this drive. You'll see a whole bunch in one area, typically in land. And these are more cost-effective than other types, like offshore! As I mentioned, the first uh, offshore one in, I think it was Denmark in the 90s. Um, these are massive. I didn't realize it, but many of them are taller than the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> they're huge. Um... And they can capture powerful ocean winds and generate vast amounts of energy. But again, you're in the ocean, so you're dealing with the ocean, mm -hmm. which is a problem. Uh, and then there's other another type called distributed. And these are uh, often much smaller, below 100 kilowatts, usually more for personal use for areas that might be farther away from the electrical grid. Yeah, so we got that. We got science. We got history. And now, environmental impacts. So, uh, do you know which animals are typically very impacted? Birds. Birds. Yep, Birds. they're one of them. Do you know the other one? Uh, it's another flying thing. Bats. Yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what other animals fly that aren't birds? <laughs> I was gonna say a flying mammal, but it would give it away. Uh, yeah. So, bird deaths are typically from fly uh, birds flying directly into the turbines, mm -hmm. and bat deaths are from flying into the turbines, but more so uh, something called barotrauma. So this happens when bats fly too close to the blades of a wind turbine. The movement of the blades can cause a drop in air pressure nearby. And this drop in pressure can damage the bat's lungs. And that can result in death. So not good. And from uh, like 10 years of study on wind turbines in Ontario, scientists have found that each wind turbine kills around 5 birds and 12 bats every year. So there were uh, 2,577 wind turbines in Ontario in 2018. So that suggests... 13,400 birds and 30,150 bats might have been killed by wind farms in Ontario in one year, in 2018, which is a lot, and we need to do everything we can to mitigate it, but just also put it in uh, perspective. I believe that wind turbines were like the ninth leading cause of bird death in Ontario uh, in this time frame, with the most, the, the number one cause by a lot was cats, 
So feral cats and house cats, mm -hmm. keep your cats inside uh, because cats kill around 200 million birds per year. So many. Keep your indoor cats in, everyone. There's your PSA. Uh, so these are the direct loss. And then there's also indirect impacts on these animals through loss of habitat, right? If you're, anytime you're putting in a big installation, you could be impacting animal habitat. And then also effects on migration patterns and other behavioral changes that it could impact because these are on, along like wind channels and you know birds find wind streams and they follow them for their their migration patterns uh, and there's there's a lot of solutions uh, that people have been working on so monitoring figuring it out because you can't really solve the problem if you don't have data on what the problem is so that's kind of your first step i've heard uh, i read about keeping turbines still in low winds because apparently bats are more active in low winds and the turbines aren't gonna be moving very much if the winds are low anyway so kind of putting a, a threshold Winds have to be moving so much, and then that can actually uh, be very preventative in helping bats. There was a small study I heard about where uh, they painted the blades black, or they painted one blade black, and it actually really reduced the bird deaths. And I think this is just because the birds can see them more, because a black blade against the sky is going to be mm. way more visible than a white blade, and most wind turbines are white. It's like those things they used to put on the power lines, those like big balls, yeah. colored like red cones or whatever, so the birds can see the lines and stuff. Yeah. Mm. So same sort of idea. Or like putting stickers on your window if you have big windows mm -hmm. to stop birds from flying into them. I think it that's probably just a... My guess is that's just a visibility thing. I was listening to a podcast where they it had some like experts on wind turbines and stuff. And they're talking about this and they kept theorizing like, why did they only hate paint one blade and like all of the different reasons? And I'm like, maybe it was just because people wouldn't want three black blades marring their sky. Mm -hmm. Because impacts on humans are pretty... There, there's a lot. People who live near wind turbines have strong opinions on them. And uh, a lot of this is the, the visual impacts, so they don't like the looks of them. It definitely changes your landscape, right? Like I mentioned, they're big. They're these big, imposing creatures, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> they're always moving, right? But and, they're, mm -hmm. uh, and people talk about the sound a lot, so these sonic disturbances. So this would be the sound of the turbine moving through the air and the mechanics themselves. Uh, people talk that there's this like constant hum or vibration with these. And there are industry and government studies, uh, like one I think in, the, in Ontario in 2014, that ha have not found these issues adversely impact public health. But like I said, a lot of people who live near them talk about these issues as like major points of concern. Uh, and, there, and there's a bit of a lack of research into the indirect effect between the noise that they generate causing stress and the, the potential effects that stress can have of, like, cardiovascular effects. Because stress is very damaging on our body. But there is evidence, I found, I think this is a study from Sweden, evidence that the noise can aggravate sleep disorders, especially if people live within uh, 1,500 meters of the turbines. So if you're, like, relatively close. Um, and we all know that sleep is super-duper important for regular human function and development and all these things. And disturbances to sleep can lead to increased likelihood of other disorders, especially things like mood disorders. Uh, so there was, there was a, uh, an increased rate of people taking sleep medication and antidepressants when they were within this range of the turbines. Mm. Uh, another visual impact is uh, something called shadow flicker. So I guess this, I, I would liken this to, you know, if you're like driving um, along like a really treed, route mm -hmm. and you have the sun coming in right at the right angle and you're driving through and it's like a strobe light almost so it's like that but like a much slower less dramatic one uh t they say it, it it accumulates like a few hours a year the shadow flicker of the blades passing between your house and the sun 
But people who live near them who all of a sudden have one put in, I can see how it would be annoying, you know? Uh, there's lots of ways to fix this. So uh, for sound, a lot of, for everything, citing conversations. So talking to the community about where these will be placed, the site they will be placed is super important because these people have to live with them. And something as big as wind turbine isn't just going to be like installed and taken down in a year. They're there for a long time. You can also minimize blade imperfections because imperfections can increase sound. You can do different like retrofittings or you can do sound absorbent materials. I heard about uh, taking like, you know, like biomimicry, you're taking stuff from nature and you take like uh, how like an owl's wings are feathered on the bottom to help make them silent hunters. If you did something like that on the turbine blades, could it, could it change it? And all those sorts of things. So there's lots of these different ways uh, with the shadow flicker and everything. You can also like plant trees, plant stuff that's going to absorb sound in the root of your, or in the path between your house and your turbine. Um, and with greenhouse gases, most estimates of wind turbine life cycle global warming emissions are between 0.02 and 0.04 pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent per kilowatt hour. Um, estimates of life cycle global warming emissions for natural gas talking about like things like methane and whatnot, um, generated electricity uh, are between 0.6 and 2 pounds of CO2 equivalent per kilowatt hour. Uh, and then coal is 1.4 and 3.6 pounds. So they do generate greenhouse gases, but to a much, much lesser extent than what we're currently using. Uh, and just one kind of relational story. I guess you spent a lot of time in Southern Ontario. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. How far south did you go? I guess south and um, west, down to like the point, like closer to the states border. Yeah, well, I was in London, and I never really went that much more south than that. We never okay. really went down to Windsor that much or anything when okay. I was there. Because if you go like even further south, you get into like Lambton County and Sarnia mm -hmm. and stuff. Yep. And in 2015, there were there was a big wind turbine project. A lot of wind turbines were installed down there uh, by Suncor and Next Era, some big companies, and. Uh, the people down there really fought against it. They really didn't want them. And they're, there's a lot of people that are still pretty annoyed by their presence. And they're like with the complaints we've mentioned, with the health ones. And then there's also complaints around there how they're taking, they're destroying really high quality farmland because they're huge, right? So you have to build like a, they're not big footprint compared to like a hydro dam, but you're still putting like a lot of cement or whatever into the ground in order to hold this thing up and have it not topple over because that'd be really bad. But yeah, so there's lots of individuals down there or people who live it, really in any area where there's a lot of wind turbines who take issue with them. Yeah, and it, you get into a bit of an issue around what's the onus on the individual versus the company mm -hmm. and how much should the company have to do to prove that it's safe versus the individual having to do to prove that it's not safe. Yeah, well, there we go. It's a lot of history and random facts. I didn't go too much into the science. It's it, Like I said, it's very similar to the water ones, right? Like the wind is pushing a thing that's spinning a thing, and then you get electricity. <laughs> Davis gave you a bit more uh, information on what actually is happening with the things and the stuff and the spinning. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that, that was wind. That we was wind. We come now to our final major topic. Book four. Uh, which I will try to get through in as quick a manner as possible to keep this uh, time card down under a certain limit. Um, okay, so we're going to talk now about nuclear energy. Uh, nuclear energy, the the darling brainchild of the fifties. That mm. is the um, every was every science fiction writer for like thirty years best friend because everything was nuclear power. It's all shiny and 
fantastic. But it's complicated. It is complicated. So nuclear f- nuclear power is based off of using the natural breakdown of radioactive elements in the Earth's crust to generate power. And the way that we do that is very complicated. And then it ultimately <laughs> goes through. It's interesting, though, because it ultimately goes through this same place with the same place that hydro and wind go through in that you essentially have to spin a turbine to generate electricity. It's amazing that they all use the same thing. <laughs> uh, it is one of those really interesting ones. And like, even within nuclear energy, there's this conversation of like, um, or with this arm of it, it's just like, yeah, like what if you could just convert the actual energy to electrical energy rather than like turning it into thermal energy to turn it into kinetic energy to turn it into uh, th- back into electrical energy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, where solar, with even with its low efficiency, is really this only one that's taking energy from it it just it doesn't have to go through that physical stage yeah it's like electricity to electricity Mm -hmm. so the way that um nuclear energy works is based off a principle called nuclear fission Mm. so uh fusion we'll talk about a little bit at the end but fusion is what takes place like in a star uh fusion is fusing stuff together exactly fission is breaking things apart so you take fissile materials which are the radioactive elements of the earth and typically we're using uh uranium so uranium-235 is like the most common isotope, uh, or sorry, that's the radioactive isotope. There's a different isotope of uranium that's much more common. That's like the standard one. 235 is the radioactive one. It's about 0.71% of all of the natural uranium that's on the planet. And uranium you can get by mining. So the uranium that goes into nuclear power plants, they just mine it out of the ground for certain types of plants or for nuclear bombs, because can't really have a conversation about nuclear fission without <laughs> uh, talking about the atomic bomb is you have to refine this uranium so that the higher a higher proportion of it is this fissile uranium-235. Uranium in general, just for as a note, is the 48th most common element in the Earth's crust. So it's fairly common. There's lots of this out there. Usually it's held in like uranium dioxides and other types of crystals and things like that. How many elements are on the periodic table? Uh, it's, oh, I don't know the number off the top of my head. Um, it's 150 something, I think. Okay, so 48 uh, is like in the top, th- or in the top third. Yeah, but you have to remember though that not all elements on the periodic table are naturally occurring in the Earth's crust. Oh, right. And not all elements on the periodic table are even really that naturally, commonly occurring. A lot of them, some of them are like the lanthanide and the actinide series, which are usually, if you look at the periodic table, they're those two. It's like ones below. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, they're often... Some of those ones way down that have like the crazy names, they're generally often like species that have been created like momentarily in certain conditions, like through certain like, you know, collider reactions and things like that. But they're not really like, oh, I'm just going to dig up some euterbium from there. Actually, (laughs) euterbium is like fairly common, but like, or not fairly (laughs) common, but that one you can actually dig out, I think. But some of these other ones, like, you know, I think like Einsteinium or whatever, they're yeah. not really that commonly occurring. Or like iridium, for example, doesn't actually naturally occur. And there's no, all of the iridium that's on Earth is from space rocks that hit right. the surface of the Earth. So it's like less than three, it's like way less than 3% of the whole okay. Earth's crust or something. Um, we'll, do, we'll do an episode on the periodic table one day. Both of us oh, find it pretty fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so so a nuclear bomb, I think I've read it said that like, it's that's close to 35% enrichment uh, or more. And what this is, so essentially what's happening is when when you've got a piece of uranium-235, it's going to, and it you hit it with a neutron. So um, a neutron is part of what makes up the nucleus of an atom. So you've got your neutrons and your protons and the electrons that spin around it. Uh, so your, you know, so your simplest atom doesn't even have a neutron, yeah. right? You've got a proton and an electron and that's 
uh, hydrogen. Yeah. Well, you really only need neutrons if you have more than one proton, because otherwise your positive protons are going to push each other apart, right? Yeah. Be like a neutron. So it has to do, yeah. So it has to do with some, the, the interim, the, like the internuclear forces, the intranuclear forces, like where a neutron doesn't have any charge, it's neutral, Yeah. but it creates other forces in like way, like these crazy physical forces that I don't understand entirely and yeah. like quarks and all these things. <laughs> and it, yeah, it creates this nuclear, the strong attraction force that holds a nuclei together. So when you get up to helium, now you've got two protons, two neutrons and two electrons. And it just sort of keeps, you keep building up your elements from there. And so what happens is when you strike something like uranium 235 with a neutron, now it's got this it, it's got it's very unhappy it's got 236 neutrons and it's going to break apart oh. and it's going to become two smaller elements that roughly are equal and add up to the same but some of their there's going to be some loss now energy can neither be created nor destroyed same with matter so what happens is is that that matter you know if you add those two parts back up together you don't get the same amount that you had before because some of that matter and energy has escaped as like another neutron and other particles. So there's like beta particles and gamma particles and things like that. So they escape as these other particles, these other forms of energy. In a nuclear reaction, that neutron that's produced by the fissile material might hit another piece of fissile material, cause it to split, releasing more energy. So in a nuclear bomb, you're creating a concentration of these elements so close together that as soon as you start the reaction, you give it one big neutron and it starts, it. Um, starts sending them out, it reaches critical mass very quickly, which means the reaction is more than self-sustaining and it's going to actually snowball until all of the energy is released from all of this fissile material very quickly in a massively powerful explosion. What nuclear energy seeks to do is take that principle and control the energy output enough to generate electricity with it. So what you are trying to do is that you are in the same way that a nuclear bomb is releasing all this energy as kind of heat and light, you are doing the same thing and you're capturing that heat in, again, another coolant, often water, and then you're turning that water into steam and using it to drive turbines. Because you're, we're, this is not a small amount of energy from each nuclear like um, breakdown like that. It's a huge amount of energy that's produced. So what a nuclear furnace or like a nuclear reactor does is so you take generally the, the first nuclear reactors you had to take some of that uranium enrich it a little bit but not to this point that it would like run out of control on you and then you um put other materials in and around the rods of uranium that you've created and you start this reaction and you try to manage the neutron economy is what they call it so essentially if if each if your fusion releases like two neutrons or three neutrons say but you really only want one neutron to hit another fissile material and continue that reaction you're trying to find a way to dampen or absorb these other neutrons like you block them sort of thing exactly or you, you know so in a traditional nuclear power plant you need to create a higher concentration and then you can use, you don't really have to use too much. You don't want to dampen it too much because like there's the natural interference of all the other particles and then you can drive the reaction that way. Uh, Canada has a made in, uh, like a developed in Canada reactor called the CANDU. It's the Canadium Deuterium Uranium Reactor. Uh, and the way that it works is you can use natural uranium materials. So there's no need for an enrichment process. And then you're using deuterized water to uh, as the moderator for the reaction so it ha allows more neutrons to pass through and stuff like that and drive further reactions what deuterized water is sometimes yeah. called heavy water so it's I've heard that term yeah so yeah. instead of hydrogen it's deuterium 
on the oxygen molecule. Deuterium is an isotope of hydrogen where it has one proton and one neutron in the nucleus. Oh. So it has twice the, the molecular, the atomic weight as a single hydrogen atom does. And basically what this does, you use heavy water in a certain concentration and it allows more neutrons from each fist, uh, each um, breakdown of uranium to get through and drive more so that you can use lower concentration natural uranium products to drive the reaction. Why does the, why does the heavy water do that? So because you have, because the heavy water nucleus, uh, the, the hydrogen nucleus has a neutron already it's much less likely to accept another neutron even if it's hit oh so stuff like bounces around more exactly so okay. few of the fewer of them are being absorbed whereas an enriched nuclear reactor might just use regular light water as it would be referred as the moderator because you're not too worried about you actually kind of want some of those neutrons to be absorbed yeah. so that you're um so that you don't run your um system out of control and the, the enriching uranium again is turning it into that 235 it's, it's taking, so say you have 0.7% 235 in any given sample of uranium, you are making that proportion higher. Okay. So you're essentially filtering out all the other normal uranium until you get to a certain percentage of the nuclear material. Okay. With can-do reactors now too, is you can mix in other radioactive materials. So you can use things like thorium as well um, to drive these reactions. So you don't have to use just... Um, uranium, which has some advantages and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. All I can think this whole time is uh, The Simpsons. I'm just seeing Homer in the plant. Well, and so, <laughs> right, so it's actually, is, it's kind of good to talk about nuclear energy in the in the perspective of a lot of, like, the cultural zeitgeist. Because mm -hmm. nuclear is one of those things that it's impossible to not to have some exposure to it based on how it's talked about in the media and stuff yeah. like that, especially. And so when you think about, like, The Simpsons, there's always the sequence at the beginning where Homer has, like, the rod. And it gets and the, in his back. And it gets in his back and stuff. <laughs> so, like, yeah, it's a cartoon, but, like, the idea of what a nuclear rod is, that's a real thing in, like, a nuclear facility. Yeah. So the nuclear rod is the bundle of nuclear material that's used to drive the reaction. So in a can-do reactor, there are all these little pins inside, like, a like basically held together like a bundle of sticks, but the size, like, like a big loaf of bread, essentially. <laughs> and what the advantage of the can-do reactor is, is that you can move these rods in and out as they get spent. So you don't have to shut the whole reactor down. You can just, you put a new rod of material in and the spent one kind of drops at the other side. Like robotically sort of thing? Like they, do it robotic, they do it okay. robotically now. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so they just are popping them in and out and you can run the reactor the entire time. Huh. But that's sort of like, yeah, so that that animated little stick, it obviously doesn't really look like that. It's not glowing in green? <laughs> no, but that's exactly what it is essentially. Is like that, And that's why like, you know, in the cartoon, they're using like the glove box and stuff like yeah, that to work on yeah. it. Cause that's what you would do in a nuclear power plant, like way back in the day and stuff. Ah. It'd be, you'd be handling these materials, but you'd have to be really far away from them behind all this shielding where you would get irradiated. Mm -hmm. Not and, good. And that's sort of one of the disadvantages of enriched uranium, right? Is that the more you enrich it, the more radioactive it is to even be near. Cause yeah. it's always breaking down. It's always giving off this ionizing radiation, which is, are these neutrons that are like penetrating everything and can break your DNA and do yeah. all sorts of crazy, nasty stuff. And we don't want our DNA broken. No, we do not. So 
Um, there's a few different types of reactors, but the way that most of them work is that you are you have a vessel where your reaction is taking place. You have some sort of either a transfer liquid or the liquid around it is the actual stuff that you're going to drive the turbine with. The disadvantage of that is when they're mixed, you're irradiating whatever fluid you're using. So you have yeah. to be very careful of the water <laughs> that you're using because it becomes irradiated and you have to store it and let it break down and stuff like that. And you are using, as this reaction happens, it's releasing some energy is lost to the environment as heat thermal energy you're capturing it in this fluid you're using the fluid to draw heat another fluid or that same fluid turn it into steam drive turbines classic so, mm -hmm. classic energy stuff yeah so a pressurized so some of them take um you've got the bundle of material inside a pressurized vessel so that you can get the water or coolant that you have around it hotter by pressurizing something you prevent it from boiling um, so if you increase the pressure, you can get water over 100 degrees Celsius before it starts to boil. And then that allows you to seep that energy out, much like the thermal stuff from solar collection, the thermal fluids. That oil stuff. Yeah, you can seep it out to drive your turbines for longer. You're essentially stretching out that reaction and stuff like that. Disadvantage of that is that in order to change the bundle, you have to open the whole pressurized reactor, which means you have to shut the reactor down to do it. These are some of the older, more traditional style reactors. And to open it, you'd lose all that pressure. Yeah. Exactly. And you have to repressurize it and stuff like that. Uh, there's the boiling water reactors, which are where basically there's no secondary liquid. It's just one liquid that you're boiling. And you have danger water. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> then now there's these advanced gas cooled reactors where instead of using a fluid like water to drive the turbines, you're using like CO2 gas as the coolant. Oh. And it's like, high, again, highly pressurized and all this stuff. Uh, and then there is the Canadian one, the Canadian deuterium uranium reactor which uses heavy water as the moderator. And then that heavy water is used to irradiate, or not irradiate, to heat up <laughs> uh, the light water to drive turbines. Mm -hmm. Just irradiate everything. So one of the things that always comes up with nuclear energy is the conversation around nuclear waste. Yeah, this is right? this was this is where my knowledge comes from. Mm -hmm. This side of it. Yeah. So nuclear um, nuclear reactors do have some environmental impacts for sure. Uh, a big one is sometimes you hear about these nuclear trailing ponds, so that the mm -hmm. ponds of water from the nuclear facility and birds will die in it and stuff yep. like that. And that's often because it's it's the water is still too hot. It's water that's coming out from this process of the turbines and stuff like that and sitting in these pools and it's still like too warm and it's filled with all these like you know and for the environment and stuff like that it's mm -hmm. like it's like in the uh oh the from the volcano the volcano movie with, with pierce brosnan oh that yeah. scene in the, in the lake yeah Dante's yeah. Peak. <laughs> yeah but that, that could have been acid but mm -hmm. i think it was heat and anyway, so that's sort of one of these things why this water is so dangerous really as well. And then and some of them, right, like the boiling water reactors that we're talking about, some of it could be irradiated, but you, you're not supposed to just like let it out into the environment. Like not that. supposed yeah. to. Um, but that's why, like, you know, you think about the, the nuclear cooling tower, like um, that's like when you think of a nuclear power plant, that big concrete con concave tower oh, yeah. that people see. That's because underneath that, all it really is is a giant pool of water that's just being allowed to cool because other oh. power plants have that, too. Okay. Other water-driven, steam-driven turbines will have that same, like a natural gas power plant will have that same structure because you just have to cool the water off. Lots of power plants will have similar type structures. Yeah, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but what do you do with the waste? What do you do with the spent material? Why is the spent material so dangerous? Very dangerous. So what happens is you've got this material that breaks apart into two other materials. Some of that might still be radioactive. Mm -hmm. And then that means 
that it's going to be giving off more neutrons, which means it's going to be turning other uranium or other materials that's in your bundle into a radioactive material, which is going to break down, which is going to send out more radiation and over and over and over. And some of these materials are going to take thousands and thousands of years to break down. That's the half-life. That's how long these um, species, these isotopes exist before they break apart. So basically you have to find ways to store this some of this material indefinitely. An interesting thing about nuclear, a lot of nuclear fuels is that you can actually, in some ways, you can kind of recycle them. Because if you think about it, you've got this bundle of, we'll take the CANDU reactor for an example. You've got this spent bundle of natural uranium where the 0.711 amount of material that was radioactive is now gone. But you've got all these other species that it broke down into and a whole lot of non-radioactive normal isotope uranium sitting there. You can do a, some different processes both through the natural breakdown of these other species that have been created and by basically firing neutrons at it through like a synchrotron or something like that. You can generate more fissile material in that same bundle, regenerate regener new reactor bundles and use it to drive the reactor again. And you can do this a few times and then you can kind of decommission the bundles, so to speak. So that's like one of the ways that some of these nuclear materials can kind of be used more than once. And then the long-term storage is actually not, it's often not as much of a problem as people sort of think about it. Yeah, because that's in my head, I've got like, it's like, yeah, these barrels and barrels of the nuclear waste, yeah, just like buried and there are places, there's a big, like big stores of this. Oh, absolutely. Places, right? But, and this is how it is stored, right? So, um, can do again, just to talk about, cause this is one of the ones I know, uh, quite well. They, uh, first they will keep the new, the reactor bundle under, uh, water in a pool in the facility for a couple of years. I think it's uh, maybe all the way up to 10 years, but I think it's only one or two years. And basically this is just because one of the main particles that's coming off these bundles because of the species that are breaking down that are left over um, is a beta wave which is blocked by water oh. so a beta wave again is it's a type of radiation so it can be dangerous but it, certain types of radiation are blocked by different materials right and water is one of the ones that will stop beta waves so you basically leave it under this water until like most of this material breaks down in the couple of years that you have it and then you can put it into these concrete facilities so often what it is, it's these big facilities that are dug into the ground. They're laid with all this concrete, these 10-foot concrete walls yeah. and stuff like that. And then you... It's like a bunker. Mm -hmm. And then generally with Candu, you'll put the spent bundles into like a little concrete cell and then you'll fill it with concrete. Mm -hmm. And then you'll build up a layer of these and then you'll layer some concrete over top. And then you'll start again and you kind of build this unit. So they are encapsulated in concrete, which prevents any of the radioactive material from seeping out into the natural environment. And it allows them to like break down and it helps also because there's going to be some heat released. So the heat can dissipate through the concrete and stuff like that. So most of what with nuclear material, it's just about storing it securely yeah. in ways that it can be stored for long periods of time. But it's not the boogeyman. It's not the like barrel of liquid nuclear waste getting dumped into the lake water that like the yeah. Simpsons often makes it out to seem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's not usually where I think it's, it's these bunkers of radioactive material and then you have to, and like consistent monitoring of it to make sure yeah. that nothing is leaking and you're you have to have these really 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 long-term projects mm -hmm. and long-term monitoring is expensive and mm -hmm. so people cut corners and they don't do it and they go oh we forever will just forget about it yeah. like there's really dangerous stuff <laughs> under the ground right there <laughs> absolutely right and that's the thing and again it's that each radioactive material can create more radioactive material yeah. which can create all these problems uh, and it's, so that's one of the big boogeymen for nuclear energy and why sometimes it's proliferation is really stalled 
But the big reason why, like, we don't see as much nuclear energy in the last five years as was maybe planned at one point is because of the nuclear safety and perceptions around the safety of nuclear power plants. The, yeah. the biggest one being the recent disaster at Fukushima, mm -hmm. which was caused by the tsunami. Uh, and the breakdown of that reactor is one of the worst nuclear disasters in history. And like that whole area, like the area right around the nuclear reactor is still like a no-go zone. And this is largely because they couldn't shut the reactor down. After the earthquake happened, they couldn't shut the reactor down, take the react, stop the reaction. So you put control rods in, which is inert material that's going to absorb neutrons. Yeah. So you lower them in and you stop the reaction so that it can't hit this critical mass. And because of the damage that the tsunami caused and they didn't have enough forewarning to, it's not an easy thing to shut a nuclear reactor down. You can't just switch, you know, hit a switch and stop. Yeah, because you have this cycle, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you've got all this temperature, you know, you've got, you might have a pressurized vessel that you need to depressurize. You can't just let all the pressure out at once. You've got thousands of degrees of, you know, what should be boiling water, all this stuff. Right? Lots of different ways to kill humans. Exactly. And in fact, like at, in Chernobyl, that was one of the biggest concerns too, was that it was the reactor core hitting the water table if they didn't shut it off in time because it was going to vaporize all this water and Ooh, cause an and explosion. Yeah. And then it was going to spread all this nuclear material way further, yeah. right? So it's all these things that are kind of happening in combination. But yeah, with Fukushima, they just didn't have the lead time to shut the reactor off properly. And then the reactor sort of runs out of control for a period of time and releases all this nuclear energy. And as the containment fails because of the damage from the yeah. earthquake and tsunami, yeah. stuff like that. And then with that, talking about like you have to bury it, the half-life and it takes mm -hmm. so long, like if it just gets out, then it's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that has definitely soured some opinion towards nuclear energy. It's important yeah. to remember that like there are nu uh, nuclear furnaces on submarines. Most, most, Whoa. oh yeah, like nuclear submarine is a huge thing, right? I have heard that term. Right, because you can I thought can't... it was like they shot nuclear stuff, but no, that's, no, no they're, they're run by. They're run by a nuclear oh. engine. And the way that that works, right? I guess you're already in like a metal tin can at the bottom of the ocean, so. Well, and you don't, <laughs> you can't, ocean, you can't but... rely on diesel. You can't rely on batteries. <laughs> Solar. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you need this self-generating source of fuel. So there are hundreds and hundreds of these throughout the world. And there's larger scale reactors too and there's really how many nuclear disasters can you name off the top of your head two chernobyl and uh, fukushima yeah. right i can <laughs> name a few others like three mile island and stuff like that but like yeah exactly there's not really that many like there's a few but but the ones that happen really capture our imagination yeah, they're really bad when they go bad and a big part of this too is because of we are always going to associate nuclear fission with the nuclear bomb because yeah. that's both technologies were birthed from the same place. And it's not like with like with a hydroelectric, if a dam breaks, you're, you can have massive loss of life. You can have a horrible, mm -hmm. really horrible time of it, but it's water in yeah. the end, right? So like once you dry stuff out, you can rehabilitate it. But with like Chernobyl, like they still can't live there, right? No, it's it's becoming more, there's been more nuclear cleanup stuff, like, and it has lessened in the years since the Chernobyl disaster. But like, Probably yeah, nobody it, right? lives in Chernobyl. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it, but it has become a more popular tourist destination as yeah, it's I've become safer to travel. Yeah. But you still have to like, you can only be in it for so long. And in, in general, I think they make you take like, um, often if you, if communities that live near nuclear power plants, often what all the citizens in the town will be given, especially because a lot of these are the towns where the people that work at the plant live, yeah, yeah. they'll all be given these um, iodine packs. So it's a pill that you take and it has iodine in it, uh, which again is a periodic table element. And what it does is it takes up, it um, 
it basically fills up some spots and proteins in your thyroid and it absorbs ionizing radiation. Oh. So if in the event of a nuclear meltdown, you're supposed to take these iodine tablets because it can protect you from some of like some of the acute effects of that level of ionizing radiation. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah. So, but it just it 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 sort of nuclear really has this bad rap because of its connection to nuclear weapons. This is yeah. one of the issues with enrichment, right? So if you're enriching uranium to run your nuclear plant, it's only a few more centrifuge runs to get material to build nuclear weapons yeah right and that's one of the big fears around this kind of stuff and like you know countries that start enriching uranium mining lots of uranium yeah. there's this question of like well what are you using it for yeah uh, and stuff <laughs> like that right uh, um fun. and so that's one of the major hurdles but they're one of the interesting things about nuclear in terms of the green energy transition is that nuclear is this technology that like it fills a lot of the same needs that are current natural gas type power plants, which are one of the more common types, that and coal, um, they fill these days. That that solar, like with solar we talked, and wind we talked about, you know, you need to store the energy. Mm -hmm. Water, you know, same sort of thing. If the water levels are low, you can't generate electricity. Um, but with nuclear, much like a gas powered plant, when the demand increases, you just increase the amount of electricity you're producing. So you just spin more turbines, you produce more electricity, you react more material, those sorts of things, right? You transfer more heat. Um, and the technology exists to integrate these types of facilities into the um, into the grid now, because they do already exist in the grid. It's more about there hasn't really been in 20 years really significant breakthroughs in reactor technology because there's just not the market for it. So this can do reactor, which has all of these advantages because of the way it was developed and the specific operational goals around not having to use enriched uranium, being able to uh, refuel it while the reactor was running, being able to build like small modular reactors. So you can build like smaller unit reactors um, and build them up into larger arrays and stuff like that. The can do reactor has really not been sold outside the country in the last like 10 years or it hasn't had a major there hasn't been a major breakthrough in the last 20 years yeah and there's lots of countries that have bought candy reactors but they're just not it never really caught on in the market and again it's just because of this attitude toward a big part of it is its attitude towards nuclear energy yeah it's just it's a it seems like an inherently dangerous one and i think part of that is probably because of our yeah that that first association with nuclear is mm -hmm. Pretty bad. And like you said, right, when things go wrong, they go wrong big and they so create big. areas that are entirely uninhabitable yeah, it's, and long-term so, effects. Yeah, it's so like apocalyptic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one interesting thing to talk about with nuclear just very quickly is this sort of future of yeah. nuclear science fiction, nuclear fusion. Instead with, of breaking it apart, you're bringing it together. Yeah. So we think <laughs> about the sun, obviously, is the ultimate energy source in our solar sun. system. Solar. It is fusing hydrogen into helium at the core with immense temperature and pressure and it is releasing this energy as what we experience as sunlight but it's this massive amount of radiate radiant energy and yeah. the self-sustaining nuclear fusion reaction in space so there's often been this idea of well what if we created a fusion reaction here on earth sometimes we call cold fusion because it's not occurring yeah. at the temperatures that are taking place in the sun I've heard that term. so this is one of those things that continuously we are like 20 years away from <laughs> and they're yeah. always saying oh 20 years we'll figure out nuclear fusion yeah. um but it would require like massive scientific breakthroughs to make it happen but basically what it would involve on earth is you would take deuterium and another isotope of hydrogen, tritium, which is now two neutrons, one proton, and one electron, and you would fuse them together 
and produce uh, helium. And the reason okay. you use deuterium and tritium is because you already have some of the neutrons present yeah. to create helium. You don't have to fire as many neutrons at it and hope for certain things to happen. Yeah. The accounting is a little bit easier. Yeah. Because um, yeah, the reason it happens in the sun is because you just have massive pressure and heat, right? Like the only reason that you're going to slam two hydrogens together is because it's in the weight and power of a star. Exactly. And again, we're still talking about billions and billions and billions of individual atoms colliding into each other, exchanging neutrons, protons, breaking down, all this accounting happening all at once. Right. So, you know, it might be incredibly unlikely to happen on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but when you've got trillions of them, it's going to happen every so often. <laughs> um, so it's really interesting. And they're saying that the idea is that like the fusion of deuterium and tritium would release something, the equivalent of 17.6 mega electron volts, which is equivalent to the energy use of 670 average Americans in one year. So they called it a unit in the resource that I looked up. So they were saying it would it's 676 units where a unit is the amount of energy used by an average American in one year. Wow. So that's the kind of the equivalence of how much electricity this is producing. The thing is, again, interestingly, with the only way that we can think about nuclear fusion now is still to drive this same type of process <laughs> where you heat it's up water, <laughs> you heat up a steam, and you turn a turbine or some sort of gas, and you turn yeah. turbines with it. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, we got one method. Yeah. Like, it works. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, I guess. Yeah. But that would be, like, essentially the idea is that, like, if you could create cold fusion on Earth, you would solve all the Earth's energy problems forever mm. yeah because it's just so much energy because you're basically harnessing the power of the sun yeah so yeah. powerful mm -hmm. and so that cool. is nuclear energy i think i did pretty well in terms yeah. of time <laughs> i mean this is a long one but mm -hmm. it's we're talking about four different types of energies with mm -hmm. very different angles on each of them. So yeah. I think we've done pretty well to get here in just under two hours. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's other energies as well. Like, you know, you talk about geothermal, which yeah. is taking energy from the Earth's crust, the heat from the Earth's crust, particularly like the mantle and things like that's a little bit deeper down, uh, using it to drive, again, turbines or other types <laughs> of processes. Um, in Iceland, Iceland is actually on 100% renewable energy and, right. re and uh, geothermal is one of the main ways they do that. Yeah. But they have the advantage of being like on a fault line where there's like literally in between two continental plates yeah. and they can just like reach down and there's lots of therm geothermal activity on the island yeah but yeah um yeah any any what else what other <laughs> yeah what else we, there's, there's like biomass which is very similar to traditional combustion but just rather than using things like natural like fossil fuels uh, like natural gas and oil or coal, you're using like quick growing biomass. So like mm. fast growing plants, um, the waste, you know, the um, compost waste from a city, those sorts of things to, you know, basically have like a garbage fire plant. Yeah, just burn it yeah. and make some steam. And, and usually yeah. they'll do, they'll uh, they'll have more sophisticated recapture systems yeah. in these biomass systems because of the type of stuff that you're giving off mm. and you burn it. Yeah, and but, there's there's lots and lots of different ways you can like make a plant safer with mm -hmm. these sorts of things. Like you have scrubbers in your big towers so that yeah. they can scrub out all these dangerous things. So you don't end up with really, really dangerous smoke leaving your plant. You just end up with like less dangerous or like the, the goal would be harmless. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's and sort of it. So we talked a lot about like renewables 
again, the, these green energies that we want to transition to. But part of the green energy transition is not just the, the use of these renewables, but one of the um, one of the like leading documents that was used at COP26. One of the things that it talked about was that like along with renewables, it's it's actually increasing energy efficiency. So yeah. even like the way homes are insulated, so there's yeah. less energy loss is going to be one of the major um, ways to go from where we are now to the 2050 targets. Yeah. Uh, carbon recapture, like we talked about, you know, scrubbers in plants, recapturing CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it. Natural ways to recapture carbon. So like planting forests, planting mm -hmm. kelp forests, regenerating these natural areas that are made to like mm -hmm. suck carbon out of the air. Yeah. And then like greater fuel transition, which is more in the, in the terms of how this paper is written, fuel transition was more in this switch from, you know, there's the argument that like natural gas will still have its place and fossil fuels will still have their place in the energy you know, in energy infrastructure, but continuing to say like, okay, well, the energy that we're generating to do this application, rather than coming from these natural gas plants, we need to start pulling them. They need to be coming from, you know, uh, geothermal plants or solar plants or nuclear plants yeah. and then continuing to transition fuels. Yeah. Yeah. And the focus on like, how do we make these more efficient? How do we like, let's spend the money and put the time in to do the research to make these much more viable and to, to make them a much more viable competitor to mm -hmm. oil and gas. Right. Yep. Yeah. Cool. So I think that takes us all the way through Ooh. today's topic. It was a doozy. That's for sure. It's okay. Maybe mm -hmm. you broke it up. You listened to it in pieces. I think we made it nice and compartmental. Like we, we had our books, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> listen, just uh, maybe you listened to a book at a time. Let us know mm -hmm. if you did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so one thing I'm hoping that maybe in the next week or two we might get to talk about, uh, it will depend on if they, I don't know when the launch is supposed to actually happen, but the, the James Webb Telescope. The long-awaited James Webb Telescope is uh, getting ready for deployment. I know it was, I think it was brought to one of the rocket launch facilities Ooh. like in the last week. Uh, basically, this is the replacement for the Hubble. It's like rumored to be like 100 times more powerful, but it's also like 10 years and like $10 billion over budget. So it'll be an interesting <laughs> one to talk about. So we'll maybe wait until some images start coming through until the launch happens, but I'll have to look into that. But hopefully in a coming episode, we'll talk more about the James Webb. Yeah, mm -hmm. it'll be pretty cool. Yeah. Anything to promote? Uh, just as always, third sock from the sun. Check out my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. uh, fun sock puppet videos. I released a newer one. I think this is since uh, the last our last episode was released. It's all about uh, artificial selection and dog breeding and genetics and mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, yeah. Got to talk about like Punnett squares, but also dogs. I love dogs, uh, but humans have kind of messed them up. So there's a video on that. I also have I have worksheets that go along with every video that I have. So if you are teaching anyone's stuff that it happens in my videos and you need a worksheet don't make them yourself don't waste your time use the ones i did i actually have a big sale right now on my website on those worksheets thirdsockfromthesun.com excellent awesome uh, find me on instagram i post about our stuff we'll get an instagram eventually for this channel but until mm -hmm. then find third sock from the sun uh on instagram and facebook mm -hmm. And don't forget to check out our friends over at Season 2 of Heat of the Moment, the podcast brought to you by Foreign Policy and Climate Investment Funds. All right. Uh, yeah. And so if you're a fan of the show, give us a follow on uh, Twitter at Temporary Expert. Uh, you can send us feedback or top feedback or topics you'd like us to cover and mm -hmm. uh, consider leaving us a review on whatever platform you're listening on or, or giving us a follow. It just helps us reach uh, bigger and bigger audiences. Mm -hmm. Hack those algorithms. So for all of us here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong. And we have been your Temporary, Temporary Experts. Experts. Thanks for listening.
Watch it, seven, five, six, five, 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 five,